0: Top nine challenges IT leaders will face in 2023, predictions for enterprise IT in 2023, as well as fallacies of ERP software and digital transformation. Those are just a few of the topics we're going to cover today in episode 103 of Transformation Ground Control.
1: This is Transformation Ground Control,
2: your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change.
0: Hello. Welcome to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 103. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm the CEO of Third Stage Consulting. We're an independent consulting firm that helps clients throughout the world reach their third stage of digital transformation success. And this is the podcast that has everything to do with digital transformation, the strategy, people, process, and technology sides of change. And with me as always is my co-host, Kyler Cheatham. Kyler, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me. Happy to be here.
0: Yes. Happy to have you and happy to have the audience here today, our third episode of 2023. And a lot of good stuff we're going to cover here today. We're going to cover the top nine challenges of IT leaders in 2023, uh, predictions for enterprise IT in 2023, kind of continuing with that thread of predicting what we think is going to happen here in this new year. And then later, we're going to have Darren Roos, the CEO of IFS Software. He's going to be on the show to talk about the fallacies of ERP software and digital transformation. So looking forward to that conversation. And then last but not least, later in the show, we'll have John Reed. On the show who is from Diginomica. He'll be talking about, we're actually going to replay a clip that we did around this time last year where we talked about the trends for 2022. And we want to revisit those seven trends to see how they held up and to see if they're still relevant here in 2023. So that'll be the topic of conversation later. And then uh, actually in that hot topic segment too, uh, in the opening segment where we talk about top nine challenges of IT leaders and predictions for enterprise IT in 2023, we're also going to start a new segment or part of the hot topic segment where we draw questions that we get on social media um, questions and comments i should say so that should uh, be a little bit more engaging and interactive so we'll be sure to cover that as well during our, our opening segment but before we get all of that just a quick reminder uh, new episodes of this show every wednesday you can find us on linkedin youtube facebook and twitter you can also find us on audio podcasts throughout the world including amazon google apple etc so All that being said, let's jump into these hot topics. What have you got for us today, Kyler?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, a recent article in CIO Magazine talked about the nine challenges IT leaders will face in 2023. So I wanted to ask you about a few of these and kind of get your recommendation on how you would, as an IT leader, address them uh, or set up strategies for success. So the first one I want to ask you about um, is the need to grow smartly. And the reason I want to ask you about this is if our audience hasn't seen it, Eric recently did um, a video and we talked about it in last week's episode about the Southwest IT complete implosion around the holiday season and kind of the aftermaths or any sort of key learnings that we could garner from that case study. So, Southwest has kind of teetered on you know, being a global company, but at the same time, having a lean IT stack and the need to grow, but still having those band-aided approaches to just be mindful of things like budget. So how would you address a company or even a CIO that knows that their technology is lacking, but they need to grow smartly because that's the job of executive leaders? How would you approach that um, in just measuring the overall urgency and spend around new technology?
0: yeah, it's a great question and something we we do touch on in the the Southwest discussion in last week's episode of this podcast. that's episode 102 if you want to go check it out and it's in the opening segment of that episode. But there's three things that come to mind when you when you mention that. One is to look at a cost benefit. you know, look at the cost that you're really spending on your legacy IT, which oftentimes is higher than you think um, when you consider you know maintenance cost and the cost of IT staff to maintain and support the system. The cost of fixes, repairs, all that stuff. Uh, if you look at the real total cost of your your current infrastructure, your current legacy tech, and then compare that to the cost benefit of if you were to replace it, or to do some, even if it's not a mass wholesale replacement of all your technology, at least selectively uh, replacing certain certain parts of it, that's one way to really quantify and get your arms around how how much value is potentially there. And also, if you can quantify the risk, you know, one thing we talk about in that Southwest discussion last week's episode is that they now, after the fact, Southwest can, in fact, quantify the risk of their legacy tech. And that's going to come in the form of somewhere between 3 and 5% of a write-off, or 3 to 5% of their earnings are going to be hit in Q4 of last year. And that's a very quantifiable real number that's actually going to be realized. So, you know, one thing that Southwest did not do well is they did not predict or have a good handle on what the risks were and what those costs were. So I think that's the first thing is do a cost benefit assessment of current state versus what potential future state might be and it's not just one one future state you have different alternatives you have sort of incremental improvements you have massive quantum leap improvements you have options that are sort of in between so that cost benefit is is one piece of it um you know the other is to recognize that you don't have to do a full-on a full-blown digital transformation a lot of the a lot of the comments i've seen recently since that southwest Uh, debacle with their IT legacy IT has been, hey, they need to do a digital transformation. Well, yeah, of course. I mean, it sounds like they probably do. They need to do some sort of digital transformation, but what does that mean? And a lot of times organizations just get overwhelmed with the idea of replacing all their technology, all these systems they spent decades building and perfecting. Now you're talking about going in and ripping it out and replacing it. And that leads to analysis paralysis a lot of times when, when organizations think that way. So, so it's also important to think about incremental changes. What can you do now to have immediate value, low risk, low cost, without necessarily having to go in and replace all of your ERP system, for example? So those are a couple of things that come to mind is just making sure that you have the cost benefit. Um, and then you really look at what your, what your alternatives are.
1: Yeah, and I would say what we've seen as a business is engaging those experts or just asking people um, when it comes to what are the phased approaches or what are those recommendations. Um, And I have another uh, question about that for you kind of later in our hot topic conversation. But one thing I want to get to when we talk about the overall cost-benefit analysis, one of the other challenges we see is resourcing and the diversification of teams. So for example, the modern IT team looks much different today than it did five years ago. And we see CIOs needing to be able to effectively resource and understand the support that their technology needs. So if you were a CIO and you have, say, new technologies or you're using emerging technologies like AI, predictive analytics, and trying to be more business-focused, like we talk about the evolution of that CIO. How would you make sure that you are creating a team of diverse talent that can understand and be more vis- business focused as opposed to technical focus?
0: It's a great question and and it's it's easy it's a lot easier said than done because you get, you know, when you're in the tech space you tend to want to focus on specific technologies, you want to further your technical knowledge, which is great, you need that, but you really want to vet out the resources that you have on your internal team and and also your external consultants by the way um that that might be helping you through the transformation you want to make sure they have that that business acumen so you know things you can look for are people that are pmp certified or have some sort of change management certification or experience with change management uh maybe they have experience with operations and process improvement that's a that's a really powerful combination when you have someone who really understands business understands business value business processes etc and they also have the technical experience that's a great combo so it's it's a bit like finding a, a unicorn. You know, you're looking for that purple squirrel. But um, if you can vet out the resources, and all things being equal, defer to the uh, defer or uh, err on the side of hiring someone with more business knowledge and maybe not quite as much technical knowledge. I I think that's a pretty good trade off.
1: Absolutely, and and I know you talk a lot and have a lot of content around how do you get into the consultant industry, and a lot of your recommendations are around having a more business focused background or having the opportunity to just ask questions and be curious about business if you want to be kind of in the consultant area. So it seems that's not only a trend on the enterprise side, but also the uh, you know professional services side as well.
0: Right. Absolutely. It's something that is really important to us when we hire and build out our team. Um, we can always find people that probably know more about technology and maybe even have deeper technical capabilities than people on our team, myself included. But we tend to gravitate toward people that have some baseline good understanding of technology, but they also have that that business operations, organizational change uh, understanding as well.
1: Absolutely, and you know me, I can't pass up a shameless plug. So if you are interested in joining our team, um, please feel free to reach out to us at work at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also go to our website and go to our careers page as well. So um, we hire a variety of different consultants that have a business background, that have a technical background, and both. So just had yeah, to throw yeah. that in there.
0: Yeah, it's a great <laughs> plug. We, we're growing quickly, especially this year and right this moment. So uh, if you are interested in making a plunge into consulting or you're looking to switch consulting firms, if you're already in it, uh, we'd love to have you on the team or, and love to chat with you about what that looks like. So that's a good, a good point.
1: Well, with that, let's move to some of the 2023 predictions for IT. And there's one I really want to share with you. And I'm actually going to read it, um, how it, it it showcases in Forbes. This article is from Forbes. Um, and the trend is hybrid multi-cloud becomes more than just a cool thing to say. And I'm not even going to just elaborate on that. I just want kind of your knee-jerk reaction <laughs> to that overall headline.
0: Well, you know I love buzzwords, so you had yeah. me at hybrid multi cloud, um, <laughs> which means it's a to me it's a bunch of gibberish. I think I think the reason I, I that uh, buzzwords are such a trigger for me is because they when words like that they just don't mean anything. Like hybrid, multi, what is it? hybrid? What multi cloud is that? What you said? Yes. Hi, I mean, th- if you really think about that, what in the world does that mean? I know what they're referring to, but it's just such a weird term. But Anyway, so that's my knee-jerk reaction. It's just another buzzword that we don't need that doesn't help things. It doesn't help clarify things in the industry. So I I guess that would be my my knee-jerk reaction to it.
1: And all buzzwords aside, the content of that prediction talks about the need for kind of refactoring, re-architecting of different applications associated with the Digital enterprise—that's what they mean by multi-cloud. So, is that something that you feel as though focusing on that interoperability, integrations, making your data arming it to be as actionable as possible? Will that be a main trend for IT in 2023?
0: Absolutely, and I think the the key word in that is hybrid. In hybrid, I think anything to do with hybrid will become more and more relevant as organizations struggle with getting the scale and the business value of cloud and other so- sorts of solutions, but also retaining the flexibility where they need it. And in some cases, you know, that's where the hybrid comes into play. Some it, it may mean that you look at more on-prem solutions to augment your cloud uh, systems. It could mean, you know, you're relying more on internet of things and best of breed solutions, whatever it may mean. You know, I think it's, it's a good indicator that there's a lot of options in the marketplace. And it's a matter of finding the right technology stack and combination. That's the best for your organization and your strategy.
1: Absolutely. And I know you'll kind of dive into that with the guests in our other episode or or the rest of our episode, I should say. So definitely stay tuned for that. But now I have to go to Eric's question jar here. Um, So if you follow ground control, you'll know that we did a few, we called them mean tweets or mean TikToks a few weeks back um, that just featured a lot of our user questions. And we decided to make it kind of the main segment of the episode because many times you guys have a, a lot of great questions that you ask, Eric, on TikTok, on Twitter, on LinkedIn. So what I've done is made a combination of all of those questions and put them in my question jar. I have to credit my two- and four-year-old, for vandalizing my office with sticky notes for this idea. Um, so thank you to them. But if you'd like to be included on our weekly Eric's Question dart, you can tag me on all plat- platforms. It's just at Kyler Cheetah. My name is the same on all platforms. Or you can tag Third Stage Consulting Group, and we'll include these each week. So are you ready, Eric? I'm More- ready more scrutiny. You thought it was just once a year we would do this. I know. You know. So
0: just to clarify though, before you pull the first one, are these all mean comments again, or is this no, just no. sort of a
1: variety of mean no, and no. interesting? Okay, good. No, I should clarify that. Please don't be mean to <laughs> Eric on the internet. Please don't be mean to anyone on the internet. Like, I feel like we should just agree to a society as that. So these are not mean. They Some are funny, but they are mostly really good questions from yeah. your incredible audience and user base that I think we should ask. So yes. with that. You ready?
0: I'm ready. Ready to roll.
1: All right. So this is a good one. So this one reads, why is SAP so much more complex to implement than any other system?
0: Great question. Well, um, I'd say two things. One is SAP is just a big system built for big, complex, diverse organizations. So the nature of the customer base they're trying to satisfy is complexity and I don't think they set out to design a really complex or the, the most complex uh, system in the market. I I suppose I, I I agree that it probably is the most complex. I've never really thought to sit down and measure or compare systems in terms of complexity, but it probably is um, one of the most, if not the most uh, complex systems for that reason. I think the other thing that SAP um, sort of is getting stuck in right now, in my opinion, is they've got this new S4 HANA platform, which is based on the HANA or S4 HANA system that's based on the HANA platform. And uh, it's, it's integrated for the most part. The core ERP system is a, is a fully integrated solution with different modules that can do different things, of course. But, and that's really what SAP's always been good at is, is the integration. So the downside of full integration and then processes is you make one change to the software upstream, it affects things downstream, and there's just a lot of complexity and nuances you've got to work through. And then you add to the fact that more recently in the last decade or more, SAP is really focused on also going out on an acquisition spree and buying up companies like Concur and Ariba, Success Factories, et cetera, business objects. Um, they bought all these different sort of best-of-breed providers, and now they're trying to bolt it on to this core system. So it's adding even more complexity in that way. So I think all those things are unintentional reasons why SAP is complex in that way.
1: And wouldn't it be true to say SAP typically – supports very complex global large businesses too.
0: Yes, yeah, they they more so than most vendors are trying to trying to deal with they're trying to address global multinational complex organizations, they're trying to deal with diverse companies, or diversified organizations that don't have just a really vanilla way of doing things and in many ways SAP is trying to be everything to everyone. Whether or not they're being successful at it, that's a whole another debate, but that is their general strategy. I don't think they've ever stated anywhere in their strategic documentation that they're trying to be everything to everyone, but they, they sort of are, and just in their actions, uh, in my opinion. So I think that, um, again, that, that creates some of that complexity unintentionally, of course.
1: Perfect. Great answer. All right. Next one. Do you have to redesign processes, specifically business processes for a SaaS system? It seems like most system integrators don't have that operational experience.
0: Ooh, great question. Um, do you have to redesign your processes? I would. Well, let me uh, let me add a preface to this or a caveat. I'd say you don't have to necessarily, but you're you're probably going to not necessarily whether you want to or not. I, I suppose is a is a different story. Um, you're, you're you're just going to have to um, in, in many ways because. Um, SaaS software, in many ways, is is more standard. There's just common processes, common ways of doing things, and that's going to require a certain amount of process change and process improvement. Um, so it's a great point in that the gap between where you are today and where you're going in the future is probably going to be greater for SaaS solutions than a, you know, a private cloud or an on-premise uh, sort of solution. Um, so, and I and I agree with the other part of that question, which is. Most implementers and system integrators don't have the operational knowledge. Absolutely agree with that. It goes back to what we were talking about before about building your internal IT group. If you can find the skill set that's both technical and business oriented, which is very difficult to do, that's going to be ideal. And that's going to help navigate that or, or close that gap or that bridge between technology and the business.
1: Yeah. And it seems like if you can even evolve that mindset within the department to be more business and operational focus, understand the impact of the overall systems. Um, yeah. As well, that's a, a good checks and balance for a system integrator that is an important partner, but still, you know, has a, a specific function.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: All right, next. Some of these are stuck to the side. So. No mean ones
0: yet. I'm, I'm. Uh, I know. Surprising. By the way, if you want to hear all mean stuff, I know you mentioned it, Kyler. But if you go back <laughs> to episode episode number one oh one, the opening segment of. It was the first uh, episode of twenty twenty three. We that's the opening segment was all mean TikTok comments. So yeah. if you if this you're getting tired like, of this you're yeah, getting tired sure. of these nice, nice comments and easy softball questions, you go back to episode one oh one for all the really mean stuff.
1: Yeah, and I will have a caveat. Eric does not know these questions. I get that question a lot of saying, like, how do you prep Eric for these types? I don't. He, he does not know these questions. <laughs>
0: Partially He's because like, I hate prep. I'm, I don't yeah, do well right? with prep, We're not so I just refuse to do that. <laughs> here,
1: Even though we don't recommend that from a business standpoint, but this right. one's funny. This is one of my favorites on your voiceover TikTok specifically. Thank you, Dr. House. And so there t- seems to be a trend that people think you sound like Dr. House, which is actually a show, a popular TV show, Dr. House. And the reason this is so funny is the The actor that plays Doctor House is Hugh Laurie, who is British. So,
0: so So I need to work uh, on my my British (laughs) accents.
1: They think you sound like Doctor House, who is very smart and knowledgeable. So that's a nice comment.
0: Okay, I I need to go look that up. I don't know who Doctor House is. I don't don't watch. I don't watch much TV, so I need to go (laughs) check that out.
1: All right, this is about um, your moving from a legacy to a new system. So the biggest problem from moving or migrating from a legacy system to a new system is the client wants to customize everything new like the old. Hmm. Interested to hear your thoughts on that.
0: It's really true. I mean, it's, that's the dark side of customization is that it, it gives you a, an easy out if you don't want to change. Um, so if you don't want to change your processes, you don't want to change the way you've been doing things forever. It's an easy out. Let's just change the new software to do what you've always done. Uh, there's some cases, though, where that's irrelevant or where that's appropriate, where you've got some core sort of core competitive advantage that's really unique to you. And that's what gets you more business and makes you successful in the marketplace. Sure, then maybe that's that is something you're either going to customize or you're going to go find a point solution to address or maybe even custom develop a software for it. That's that's not a terrible thing. But I think the problem with the industry is every these decisions are often so binary. It's like either you you customize or you don't. And it, the reality is, well, OK, maybe you lean towards not customizing, but you're probably gonna have to customize something. It's rare that we ever see companies other than like our some of our smaller clients and some of our younger clients as far as they just haven't been established as long. They just have an easier time migrating to like a, a SaaS solution or a newer technology compared to like, a you know, a. a an organization that's been around for a couple hundred years and the average 10 years, 25 years, you know, for employees, that's just going to be harder to change. And it's going to be more likely that the latter example are, are going to want to customize the software. So it's a it's a great point. And one thing I also mentioned, too, is that heavy customization is oftentimes the symptom or the result of not investing enough in organizational change management. So if you're not investing enough in organizational change management, odds are pretty high that you're going to end up going down some customization rabbit holes that you don't want to do especially if you don't have good project governance and controls on top of that. So if you're lacking organizational change and you're lacking project governance and controls, it's going to be really hard for you to go through a transformation without significant customization that you probably don't need.
1: Absolutely. Um, And we do have a blog about this on our website. If you do want more information on, I think it's actually called the dark side of customization, Um, but I'll pop it in the comments here um, for the live episode, if you want more information there. So Let's do one more. Are you still up for it?
0: Sounds good. Yep, I'm, I'm still I'm still standing so far.
1: That's great. This is a very interesting one. Are consultants more commonly affected by bias for tier one systems?
0: Hmm, it's a good question. I would say yes, only because the tier one systems require such big armies of consultants. And the big system integrators tend to focus on tier one products like SAP, Oracle, maybe Microsoft Dynamics. Um, so you just have more sheer volume of consultants that specialize in tier one and therefore are going to drink the Kool-Aid uh, for that particular vendor. And, and it's, uh, you know, if you think about it, if you're a consultant and you work for Accenture or Deloitte or, you know, insert system integrator name here. And you've been trained and brought up in the world of, let's just say, Oracle, you just know Oracle, that's all you know, you're going to lead with Oracle first. I mean, that's what you know, it's what you, it's the bias that was ingrained in your upbringing, in the in your career. And so you may not intentionally do it, but you're just going to have a, an Oracle bias. You're not going to be likely to say, you know what, this software is just not a good fit. You should go with SAP, um, for, partly because you're not going to know any better necessarily if all you know is Oracle. But second of all, because your large SI employer is probably going to tell you, don't ever say that. And I was told that at a a young age, don't ever mention anything other than SAP. In my case, it was all, it was all SAP. Um, Let's figure out how we can get the SAP footprint as large as possible in each and every client that we work in. And that was just what our direction, our directives were from the higher ups within that SI. So, um, so yes, I I do agree. I, I think that's the reason why you see so many consultants that are biased toward tier one solutions.
1: Well, that was a great round of questions. And just a reminder, if you'd like to be in Eric's question jar here, um, you can go ahead and comment on any sort of his. um, He has TikTok, Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube, anything like that. We pull from everything. So you can tag me or tag um, Third Stage Consulting and we'll get these questions in and address them each week. So thank you, audience, most importantly, for those great questions. And thank you, Eric, for all of your insight.
0: Absolutely. Yes. Thank you audience for great, great questions there. That makes it more interactive and more fun in these, these hot topic segments. So we'll continue to mix those into our opening segments of the podcast for this year going forward. So uh, we're going to shift gears and it actually builds on unintentionally builds on some of the things we just talked about um, in in some of those questions that you, you randomly picked Kyler. Um, We're going to have after the break, we're going to have Darren Roos, who's the CEO of IFS Software. He's gonna be on the show talking about fallacies of ERP software and digital transformation. So we'll be talking about some of the common misconceptions, misunderstandings, things that you should know, the pitfalls, the risks, things you should know about ERP uh, implementations and digital transformations. We're gonna talk about that with Darren here in just a moment, but first we're gonna take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control.
1: Are you looking to stay ahead of the curve in the ever-changing landscape of digital transformation? Then you need our newly released 2023 Digital Transformation Report. This comprehensive report covers the latest trends, technologies, and strategies to ensure your digital transformation is optimized for success. The 2023 Digital Transformation Report is packed full of proven methodologies and insights from experts in the independent digital transformation field. You'll also receive practical insights on how to implement digital transformation strategies within your unique organization. This free report is available for download on our website at thirdstage-consulting.com under our Thought Leadership section.
0: Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 103. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday on YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter, as well as audio podcast platforms throughout the world. So be sure to check us out, subscribe, leave us a comment or review. We'd love to hear from you. So our next guest is Darren Roos, who's the CEO of IFS Software, and we wanted to have him on the show to talk about the fallacies of ERP software and digital transformation. And just as a side note here, um, Darren is only the third software vendor we've had on the show. We've we, The first one we had was the CEO of Odoo Software. Second one was the president of Epicore Software. And now our third vendor guest is the CEO of IFS. And I was always very resistant to having vendors on the show because I didn't want it to turn into a commercial for their product. Um, and in this case, uh, that's why we're not going to just talk about IFS and how awesome it is. Uh, from from Darren's perspective, we're going to talk about more general digital transformation trends and, and things to be aware of, more specifically fallacies and misconceptions in the space. And these these blind spots that we're going to talk about are really damaging. They, they undermine digital transformation success. And a lot of these fallacies and misconceptions we're going to talk about are some of the reasons why so many transformations fail. So we're going to try to get to the bottom of it so we can avoid those sorts of mistakes and avoid those failures. And just as another side note, third stage is completely unaffiliated with IFS and any other software vendor that we might discuss or have on the show in the future. Um, I will admit that I will probably bait Darren more into talking about IFS simply because a lot of people don't know much about IFS. So I do want to talk about IFS maybe more than I typically would ask uh, for for guests on the show that are are coming from software vendors. So with that all being said, uh, Darren, welcome to the show.
3: Thanks for having me, Eric. It's uh, good to be on the program.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You're your first time guest and I really appreciate having you here and uh, excited to have you here today, uh, largely because you have such a, a broad and diverse background in this industry. And I think you have some really good insights for us uh, related to that. But maybe before we jump into some of the questions that we all have for you, maybe tell us a little bit about yourself and then I'll come back and ask you a little bit more about IFS as well.
3: Sure. So my name is Darren Russ. Um, I've been doing this uh, enterprise software, Uh, gig for going on 17 years now. Um, Originally from South Africa, as you can hear from my accent, although I've been in the UK now for um, 12 years. Um, And uh, over the last 12 years, I've worked for three companies. Um, First into my career was with uh, Software AG, German middleware software company, you probably know. Um, And then I did four years with SAP, um, ultimately running the global cloud ERP business. Um, and then I've been CEO
0: at IFS for the last five years. Great. Yeah, so that you see you've been you've grown up in the space as well, and I'm sure you've seen a lot of interesting developments that we'll we'll kind of cover here today as, as we talk about trends in, in the future of, of the enterprise tech space. But tell us a little bit about IFS software for those that, that haven't heard the technology or, or just aren't familiar with the company. Maybe tell us a l- little bit about the company.
3: Yeah, so IFS is a is an enterprise software company. We focus on customers in the upper mid market and enterprise space, um, and we sell um, a set of solutions that are very focused on asset and service centric industries. So, thinking um, anything that has a, a a bunch of assets or a lot of service, so it could be oil and gas, construction, telco, um, engineering, um, utilities, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, And the solutions that we sell um, are predominantly clustered, I would say, into into three categories, which, you know, the the traditional analysts would recognize as as ERP, field service management, and enterprise asset management. Um, But really, why we're as successful as we are um, is really in the intersection of those three things, because we provide ERP, EAM, and FSM on a single platform. So uh, for those of you that do know us, you'll know that we're the, Gartner Magic Quadrant leader for field service management. Uh, We're a leader for asset management um, and in our asset and service center industries, we're also a leader for ERP. Um, So it's really our ability to give customers the best of each of those capabilities um, as it relates specifically to their industry that has been such a big contributor to our success. Um, We're uh, just over a billion in revenue um, and um, we have been around for over thirty years. Um but yeah, that's that's IFS in a nutshell.
0: Great. And I
3: And Eric had warned me that he might drop off. So I'll just carry on talking until he rejoins and the
0: the key. Back. Oh, you're back. We lost you, you for a second you, there.
3: You dropped off, Eric, but you're back.
0: <laughs> One of us dropped. I don't know. Um, hopefully the, the audience can still hear us okay. Um, I was going to say, the, the one of the interesting things about IFS that we'll get to throughout this discussion is that the product has a lot of strengths that are the weaknesses of other ERP systems and, and a lot of sort of edge capabilities and in, in industry-specific functions. So, we'll, we'll get to that here in a second. But before I do that, though, actually, before I dive into anything ERP-related or digital transformation-related, I just have to ask you a question um, on a maybe more of a personal level. Um, you're also the co-founder of a nonprofit called Inner Wings, which I, I, you and I didn't talk about this as we were prepping for the for the discussion, but I saw it on your on your LinkedIn, and I thought, you know what, I want to ask you about that because it sounds really interesting, and I'd just love to hear more about just what is Inner Wings and sort of what is your involvement there with, with, the, with the nonprofit. So, uh,
3: it's it's a it's a passion project that my wife and I started a couple of years ago, um, and I think uh, some of you may or may not know my wife. She's the the CEO of Sousa, the open source company Melissa. No. Um, and uh, Melissa and I started the charity a couple of years ago. And I think growing up in the enterprise software space, we see that it's super difficult for, for women. Um, and we see the, the disparity from a gender equality perspective. So we started Inner Wings. And what Inner Wings does is it really focuses on addressing uh, the, the, the gender bias topic uh, in young girls, aged kind of six to 12 years old. Um, and what we know from science is that that six to 12 year age gap uh, or group rather is, is where the stereotypes are, are kind of embedded. Um, so inner wings goes into schools. We do a bunch of work with schools, uh, in a number of countries focused on getting girls, young girls to recognize that they can do anything, be anything that they want. Uh, they don't have to be, uh, nurses and, uh, flight attendants. Um, they can be doctors and pilots and, uh, that's the work that inner wings does. And we're immensely proud of what we do and, uh, yeah, that's inner wings.
0: Very cool. Yeah, so you're, you're more than just an enterprise tech guy you're also uh giving yeah. back to the community and doing some passionate things on the on the side as well
3: absolutely and we, really- have, we have we have three kids and one of which is a young girl and i think you see the disparity and you know most of your listeners will have kids and they'll recognize that uh, that challenge
0: yeah absolutely well good well that's that's super interesting and um, just as a side note where if someone wanted to learn more about Inner wings where where would they go is there do you have a website or something that they yeah. could go check out
3: go to innerwings.org absolutely and we'd love them to.
0: Right. Absolutely. Well, good. Well, so shifting gears then back to the digital transformation and sort of the topic here today of the fallacies of ERP software and digital transformation. Um, just sort of transitioning into that conversation, I guess maybe to start, One of the, let me back up for a second. One of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the show is not only because you're the CEO of a prominent software company here in the space, but also because the the type of software that IFS provides is, is quite a bit different than than other ERP vendors, and it sort of provides a uh, just a different approach uh, to enterprise technology. And and you yourself have you're not only the CEO of IFS now, but you as you mentioned, you also worked uh, with with SAP and Software AG. Um, I think you had uh, some time in Acumatica as well. Yes. Um, so you've worked with multiple solutions throughout the years, and I, I guess I'd be curious to hear you know how is IFS different from other ERP solutions in the marketplace, or how would you consider it different from those systems that you've worked directly for and with and in other systems as well?
3: Yeah, so I, I, I sat on the board of Acumatica for a while when EQT, who was a private equity firm that owned IFS, uh, when they acquired Acumatica, I sat on the board um, during the acquisition phase. Um, and then I also sat on the board of Sitecore, just as, a, as an aside. Mm. Um, yeah, so I, look, I, I've been in the space for quite a while. And I think when I came to IFS coming out of SAP, what I recognized was that there was definitely a gap um, where customers wanted to not have to face this difficult challenge between best of breed, where they could find a solution at the functional depth that they wanted, um, and best of suite, where they could get something that was integrated um, and uh, and and would give them the the benefit of, it, of an integrated solution. Um, and you know, for a long time, with the the discussion around composable ERP. Customers have been, um, I guess, told that they have to choose between these two things. You can either have the functional richness or you can have an integrated solution. Mm
1: -hmm.
3: Um, And the reality is that there there is another dimension, a dimension where you can get the functional richness and the integrated capability. But then the the software vendor has to compromise by being industry focused. Um, And that's effectively what IFS has done. Um, so when you look at, at our competitive landscape or our peers, um, then the likes of Oracle or SAP or Microsoft, um, they all provide horizontal ERP solutions where they're catering for a very broad um, subset of, of, of industries. You know, all of the industries are, are served. Um, and the reality is that when you're building a, a solution, a, an enterprise business solution that needs to be deployed in a bank um, and a healthcare provider and a manufacturer, Then there's going to be a lot of capability that is just surplus to requirements or capability that's not there and then you know that that then falls on the ecosystem to try and build it bespoke for the customer but when you're building an erp that is only for industries where uh, your capability is required in other words these assets and service-centric industries that i mentioned um, then we're able to build capability that enables them to get the best of breed uh, but in an integrated solution, single data model, single UX, um, you know, no disparate uh, databases and and release cycles to deal with.
0: Right. Yeah. And I think that's one of the interesting things about IFS is that it, as you mentioned, it's not trying to be everything to everyone. It's right. it's focused on specific industry, specific functions. And I think that really is a key differentiator because you look at SAP, Oracle, Microsoft, just to pick on a few uh you know vendors in the space they are trying to be everything to everyone and you're just going to get a watered down solution you know especially if you're in a highly complex or unique industry like a field service or asset intensive uh, sort of industry that you mentioned well I think um, what's
3: tended to happen then over time is is that customers tend to then stick with them for a subset of the capability so you know I I I, I don't think that too many people would argue that SAP's finance solution is is a compromised functional solution, you know, they have fantastic capability. And if they sold, uh, you know, FSA uh, uh, e, uh, finance standalone, then it would be a best to breed finance solution. Um, right. And I think that that's effectively what's happening now is that c- customers are then uh, choosing to 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 exploit this composable enterprise uh, option by then taking a bit from the their horizontal ERP provider, and then going out and buying best to breed apps that then you know, will we'll, we'll make their full function solution. Now, the challenge with that scenario is that if you're, um, you know, if you're Volkswagen or, or, or BASF or, you know, you're a very, very large company and you have thousands of people in IT, then that's okay because the integration and the complex release cycles and critically securing those disparate applications. Um, is something that you have the capacity to do, but if you, you're an organisation with 500 million in revenue, or a billion in revenue, or two billion in revenue, you probably only have a couple of hundred people in uh, IT, and then you don't have the capacity to to do that. And you know, unfortunately, the industry is, has has uh, has sold this idea that with uh, with with APIs and with uh, native cloud integration that you can just plug them in and, and it'll just work. Um, And unfortunately for anybody who's done an SAP project with Salesforce or Workday or Cooper and try to just plug them in using a, 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 you know, a, a native cloud integration vendor, they'll know the reality of that scenario.
0: Right. Yeah. And that's something you and I have talked about, too, is that, you know, in this space, even vendors that are selling or alleging to sell integrated solutions, really those solutions oftentimes are not as integrated as they seem. Uh, yeah. and that's that's something we see a lot like with SAP recently, with their in the over the last decade or so with their acquisition minded approach, they've gone out and acquired success factors and Ariba and other other point solutions that are third party solutions, but it just so happens that SAP owns them, but they're they're still not integrated solutions with S4 Hata, you know, their core flagship product. And other yeah. vendors are doing the same sort of thing. Is that something you're seeing, or is that something you're trying to counter with know. IFS's strategy or?
3: I, I think at the end, of the day, I just put my customer hat on, and I think that there are a bunch of customers for which SAP um, is 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 absolutely the right solution. But there is a group of customers where you know where where perhaps they would want the benefit of the integrated solution, um, and then obviously they're struggling with the reality of you know when 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 SAP bought uh, Concur or they bought. Uh, Ariba or they bought fieldglass or they have s 4 All of those have invoicing capability as an example. Um, and then where do you do the invoicing from? you know right. h- how do you navigate that complexity? and, and that's just the reality. Um, but as I say, there are a bunch of customers that 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 is okay. that that doesn't matter because they do have the capacity to to solve that complexity. but uh, you know where, where ifS is 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 in our sweet spot, is in that that customer who is saying, you know what, I, I need a, a robust HR solution. Um, I don't need workday or, or success factors. I just I, I need a, a strong solution and IFS has that. And I need a a, a strong, you know, solid CRM solution. I don't need Salesforce.com um, and, and IFS has that. And I, I need my procurement and my 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 distribution, my transportation management, my finance, and all of those things, but I don't want to have to worry about the integration. I want it in the cloud. Um, and, and I don't to have to deal with users facing different user interfaces. I don't have to worry about the integration. I don't want to worry about managing different databases and so on. Um, and that's the sweet spot for us. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it's a much greater level of functional depth um, than than any of our, our peers provide. So it's it's not what uh, a Microsoft or somebody like that would do. Um, and we focus, there's a question I can't help but answer it, Gassan. Uh, uh from Kuwait has, has asked what industry so aerospace and defense is a is a is a big industry for us. It's our single biggest industry. Um energy and utilities, uh construction and engineering, uh manufacturing and then service industries like engineering and telco and so on.
0: Right. Yeah. Great question. I was actually gonna I was getting ready to cue that up so you beat me <laughs> to the beat me to the punch there. Um and speaking of our audience too, by the way, just uh, before I get to some follow on questions from that comment you just had, uh, Darren. I just want to turn to the audience here and, and sort of acknowledge where a lot of people are joining from here today uh, we have Kasan from kuwait um, sam from spain ryan from denver malcolm from the uk um, zishan from pakistan uh, tj from wisconsin um, among others uh, chris from dublin uh, we have third stage consulting group on on the line as well um, another person from kuwait uh, sultan from oman so just a few examples of where people are joining from today it's always interesting because i feel like we get even though i'm based in the united states uh we we don't get as many people from the united states as we do elsewhere in the world so it's great to see such a global audience here today um for the discussion so uh, so you just answered the you know the question that i was going to have which is the the vertical you know which industry verticals I desire us focus on i guess to shift gears though and, and look at the overall enterprise tech space you've talked about this sort of um this sort of uh what do you call it? The the dichotomy between the, the single ERP systems and the um, the the more focused point solutions, and and I think what we're covering here today, or what we're seeing in, in other vendors such as IFS, is that you're covering that middle ground. It's sort of like you're not a best of breed provider, but you're not a one size fits all, trying to be everything to everyone sort of solution. You're you're sort of in that middle ground. Is that a fair summary of where you, you see yourselves?
3: Yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, if it was a Venn diagram, you'd, you'd have proponents of of, of, of best of sweets only, you'd have proponents of best of breed. And, and I like to think that the, the solutions that we provide, specifically in the area of, of field service and enterprise asset management, are the two best solutions on the market. So there, there is no better field service management solution, and there is no better enterprise asset management solution. If you look at the industries that we serve, they're all industries where enterprise asset management and field service management are really critical to the success of those organizations. Um, so, you know, yes, absolutely, in, in, in that intersection of the two.
0: We're here with Darren Roos, the CEO of IFS Software, having a conversation about fallacies and misconceptions related to digital transformation. We've got a lot more to cover. We're gonna take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. Hi, this is Eric Kimberling, the CEO of Third Stage Consulting, and we recently hosted our Digital Stratosphere 2022 virtual event. It's three days of packed content related to digital transformation best practices, about 16 or 18 different workshops and different speakers that are presenting on different topics. Everything you need to know about transformation. The the bad news is, you if you miss that event, the event's over. the The live event already happened. But the good news, if you've missed it, or even if you did attend it and you want to see replays or you want to catch the sessions you missed you can do that now by going to stratosphere 2022.com go to stratosphere2022.com register all you have to do is put in your your name and email address uh, just a few fields you get immediate access to all the recordings and the recordings cover everything from digital strategy um, software selection organizational change process improvement architecture data migration cloud trends in the industry Um, how to avoid failure, some of the legal aspects to think about, contractual aspects to think about as it relates to your transformation. All that is stuff that you'll get by registering for Stratosphere 2022 replay. And again, go to stratosphere2022.com, and you can listen to all the replays of all the workshops that you might have missed at the event. So hope you check it out, and uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 103. We're here at Darren Roos from IFS Software, talking about common fallacies and misconceptions about digital transformation. So overall, then, what do you what do you see as some of the biggest trends that are emerging in the enterprise tech space?
3: You know, it's, it's interesting because when I read it, um, I thought, you know, th- th- there's obviously been a, a, a huge shift to the cloud. And in fact, I think Sam asked the question, you know, does that mean that everything has to move to the cloud or the, is it a fallacy that everything has moved to the cloud? Um, and I'll answer the question at the same time, which is absolutely, uh, it, we do not believe that everything should move to the cloud. Um, I think that there are, there are uh, you know, use cases which lend themselves really well to the cloud and customer situations are all very different. And actually, IFS's philosophy is that we provide a solution, which is called IFS Cloud, but it can be deployed as a remote option, which is effectively an on prem instance. And then what we do is, is that we update that on prem instance, uh, like it is in the cloud. So a customer can put it in their own environment, they can put it into a, a system integrators environment, they can put it onto a hyperscaler, and we update it like a normal cloud application, but run as a remote instance. Um, and, and, and so we're a big believer in a hybrid cloud and giving customers that choice. Um, so I think the cloud is obviously a, a, a trend that continues, but I think a, a much greater practicality around what should be in the cloud and what shouldn't and the role that hybrid cloud plays. Um, and then obviously we see um, a continued move towards um, uh, automation. We continue to see a huge push towards greater analytics. And in, in times like today, whether it's supply chain visibility or, you know, customer visibility, um analytics and data is so important. But actually the thing that struck me, um, Eric, when I when I was reading that question was just how how the fundamentals of what customers are looking for hasn't changed at all. Um, And you know, at the end of the day, what they're looking for, um, and having spoken to many customers in my 17 years of doing this, is that they're looking for solutions that are, you know, let's take functional capability as a as a ticket to the game. The solution has to be able to do it. Um, That's important. But it has to be easy to use, it has to be easy to deploy, um, and it has to have a lower total cost of ownership, uh, or or an improved value ROI. And and ultimately, that's what we continue to push to do is to try and make it easier to deploy, make it easier to use for users, um, and focus on bringing down that total cost of ownership. And in the enterprise application space, that is that is evergreen, right? That's the that's the holy grail. And unfortunately, it's not a destination, it is a continuum. Um, and we continue to focus on that. And it's interesting because so many vendors continue to talk about artificial intelligence and they continue to talk about augmented reality and they continue to talk about um, a bunch of, of technologies, which in my opinion, those technologies just have to be embedded in the application. That, that, I, customers don't want to hear about another thing that they need to buy that gets added on. They just expect us as vendors to make it available, and we should just make it available, but we should always be striving to to focus on those three things, I believe. So easier to use, easier to deploy, lower total cost of ownership. And that is, you know, for 17 years, that's what customers have been telling me is most important to them, and that hasn't changed at all.
0: Right. Yeah, that's a, that's really interesting to hear you say that, and I was actually, as you were describing that, I was thinking, you know, it sounds so simple, so easy, so basic, but I think a lot of software vendors and industry consultants, they I think we miss that a lot. Like let's just get the let's not worry about AI and augmented reality and the metaverse and blockchain and all that stuff quite yet. Let's just get the fundamentals down and let's figure that piece out. And then we can sort of from there layer on some of the more advanced emerging technologies. But a lot of times we want to go backwards.
3: Just to be clear, I think that as we as we engage with, with with our customers and our partners on you know, where do we take the product and what do we do? making sure that emerging technologies become embedded is, is is a critical part of our development life cycle. If you look at what IFS has released over the last few years, um, we we have significant um, examples of all of those technologies in use by customers today. But that's not, that that isn't what the talk track is about because ultimately the customer wants to understand how they're gonna be able to tangibly derive value from it. Um, but too many vendors have for too long become more focused on um on you know how are they going to um convince their customers to take advantage of those things while neglecting the really important things which customers are worried about so you're right i I think not not often enough are we focused on those things
0: absolutely and and just to build on that the whole thread that we were just talking about this is another question from gassan um, and by the way gassan is one of our regulars on this live stream and he's he's a I'd say he's a tough crowd, you know, he's not an easy person to, to please. So this is pretty glowing praise from him, I'd say. But he says um, he worked with IFS for 10 years, thumbs up to Sweden for the innovation built into IFS. And I, I guess I want to maybe counter what you just said, which is, you know, you focus on the basics, you know, get the automation in place and, and, and sort of some of the more fundamental, less sexy sorts of approaches to, to technology. How do you balance that though, you know, the, the core fundamentals with providing innovation and sort of pushing the the boundaries and the capabilities of the software? What's been your approach? Or what have you seen work there?
3: You know, again, it comes back to focus. Um, And I think that when we, um, I I, I was on the board of another software company for a while, and I I, um, unashamedly stole this idea from them of being really, um, the the term they used was customer-driven innovation. And a lot of vendors talk about customer-driven innovation but the reality is, is that 80, 90% of the ideas um, that they come up with come from their own engineering teams. Um, and that's something that I've really focused on us not doing, where we've we've really brought rigor to how do we ensure that you know, what we're building is what our customers are asking us for um, and making sure that we're, we're effectively crowdsourcing that requirement and then you know, you don't end up with a situation where a large proportion of what you're building sounds great to the engineering folks that built it, but actually the customer is going, but I I don't need this function. Um, and that's very, very common. Um, and, you know, I, I, I can tell you, I've seen in, in, in many of the companies, uh, I've only worked in three now, but they, they acquired companies um, where, where that was a, was a disease almost where, you know, customers would be complaining about, um, you know, system reliability and uptime, um, while hundreds of new functions that nobody was using were being released. And and, and that's a very unhealthy situation, but one that's very common.
0: Hmm. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. And I, and I think that's the the key is, a, you know, it, really understand what your business needs are, your requirements, what, what are your goals and objectives as an organization, and how can technology fit into that? And I think too often we we look for that silver bullet. You know, we we turn to the sexy technologies, thinking if I just deploy AI and machine learning, that's going to make my business better. Well, it maybe, but it's not going to if you don't get that core fundamental stuff in place, like just basic automation and, and integrated workflows and all that good stuff.
3: And it is. Look, I I, I don't want to make it sound like like we're you know we get it perfect. I, you know, we 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 equally struggle with this. Look, at the end of the day, um, you know, we have. Uh, 3,000-odd customers around the world, 3,000 enterprise customers. Um, and uh, you know, while we are very focused on those industries that I highlighted before, and a lot of the processes are common, the way in which they they think about assets and the service of those assets is common, um, you, know, you still have divergent requirements. And, and, and finding the compromises on how you take care of them is, is, is particularly important. I think the biggest challenge in, in our world is you know when you have a customer that says you know I, I know someone who's done a uh, uh, you know a service management or an ERP project with uh, with with you they were super happy you know we'd like to talk to you about it and we have to say well look actually you're a retailer and the answer is no you know that's not a, a path we're going to go down that tends to be the the, the biggest challenge for my teams but uh, you know we 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 stay modest we stay humble uh, you know and 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 just focus on trying to be the best that we can in the space that we're in
0: right right now we've talked quite a bit um and we actually on this podcast by the way have talked quite a bit about this whole debate of you know single erp system versus multiple solutions or best of breed in fact just in last week's podcast episode which is episode number 102 we had a guest on who was talking about uh best of breed and sort of the pros and cons of that that approach um so if you haven't listened to uh, episode 102 just go back to transformation ground control episode 102 and you can hear that full discussion but I'd be, I would love to hear as a follow-up to that, even though you, you may not have heard that conversation, um, what do you see as the biggest pros and cons of single ERP software versus the more composable ERP or the best-of-breed ERP?
3: I think the challenge comes when customers are trying to, um, you know, go down the route of of, of capturing the benefit um, of a best-of-breed solution, um, but without understanding the complexity of what uh, that fragmented landscape is going to bring um and i think that unfortunately and you know i think somebody asked the question earlier about you know how do you counteract this but vendors are going to tell you this is easy you know they're they're good. and we've had loads of cases where a, a, a customer will 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 um will will buy um you know they'll go i don't want to throw a specific vendor under the bus but they'll buy a traditional best-of-breed solution for procurement or hr or crm you know who the vendors are um and then they'll select ifs as the erp and then they'll say okay now you ifs need to integrate to this vendor and we go but hang on we're we're 80 of the landscape they're 20 percent of the landscape why why are you asking us to do this and the answer is because that vendor does not have an answer Mm. um and 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 now, when they do that, that's okay because uh, we are architected to be able to do that, and we are used to working with other vendors in that way. But the problem is that when they go best of breed HR, best of breed procurement, best of breed um, uh, you know contingent labor, best of breed procurement, and then a customer with a relatively small um, IT department is then faced with the challenge of how am I going to get this to work together? I mean that's a disaster. And we see a lot of those. And we've been into a bunch of customers, where we've gone in, and they've had a fairly fragmented landscape, you know, a couple of those best of breed vendors, and then they end up taking them out and, and replacing them. But that's a huge uh, expenditure that you know, and and you know, time to value that they've wasted. So I think right. that's probably the most common mistake that I see. Um, yeah, you know, I think that's the answer.
0: Yeah, no, that's, that's interesting. And And how do you if you're a buyer, you know. If I'm an enterprise tech buyer, I'm on a, I'm on on an evaluation team that's really considering some some ERP systems that are going to be uh, potentials for my organization. How do I see through that? How do I how do I vet that out? You know that you know fully integrated. You know the the false messaging, if you will, that the in, the solution is fully integrated when it's not. How do I how do I vet that out? Or what are some tactics you've seen that yeah, wh- think, that you've seen work?
3: You know, references are so important, and I think taking the time to to meet with the references, um, you know, talk to them about the experience that they've had. Um, you know, the the enterprise. You know, your your, your listeners will be savvy in the space. Um, I was chatting to uh, to a, a customer of ours in the US um, that, that that builds pools. They're they're a very large US you know swimming pool manuf uh, installer manufacturer installer, and uh, you know we were talking about the fact that when they put in a pool. Um, you know the process is that they come to your home, they dig a bloody great hole. There's a huge pile of dirt, um, and for a while it's very messy. And and unfortunately, there's there's no other way to build a pool. You know what I mean? <laughs> digging digging that hole and having the dirt there is just the reality. And unfortunately, enterprise business solutions. You know what we do, whether it's a very large integration project or a very large ERP project, they're a bit like that. There is a process where it's uncomfortable Uh, and the organization especially if you're going to do it well where you want to drive fit to standard you want to make sure that you're adopting the processes as they're intended that process can be very uncomfortable for an organization and there is no super simple easy way to do it it's going to be somewhat organizationally painful Um, and i think that just accepting that and finding a partner uh and, and i use the word partner because you can't approach it as a vendor. You have to recognise this as a marriage. There are going to be compromises, puts and takes, um, and talking to references that describe that relationship. Um, you know, one in which they've partnered with the vendor, um, and and you know, when 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 there have been challenges that they've solved them together. Talk through those challenges. Make sure that that that, that you're really exploring what worked, what didn't work, how did the vendor respond when things didn't go well. Um, because, you know, if, if you get on a reference call and the customer just tells you everything was perfect, you that's not a real reference call.
0: Right. Yeah, you want to get to the the gory details, the good, the bad, the ugly, all that stuff. And uh, Gassan has a good follow up here is to sort of answer or build on the question of what are the advantages and disadvantages of best of breed versus single ERP. And he makes the comment that there's challenges to best of breed solutions that include integration and security. And multiple versions of the truth. I think security is a really interesting one because that sort of exposes you to more vulnerabilities or more potential openings for a for an outside actor to to hack into your systems. But um, any thoughts or comments on this comment here from Gazan?
3: A hundred percent. You know, I think I'm I'm obviously the CEO of an enterprise software company that and, and we we build and sell and, and implement software. But but I also run a billion dollar business. Um, and, and that means that I have five thousand, five and a half thousand employees now and, uh, and a bunch of customers that I need to secure. And that means that I think about cybersecurity a lot. Um, and there is no question um, that the more fragmented your landscape is, um, the more points of entry there are for bad actors. Um, and, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, if you go back to, you know, uh, I don't know, 10 years ago, people used to think about shadow IT as a problem in the context of spend uh, but the reality is is that you know the problem now is security and the 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 threat of of, of cyber security today is not uh that it will cost you some money the threat is that it can absolutely destroy your business and it doesn't matter who you are any business um can be completely debilitated um if if, if that is not handled well and there's no question that uh you know a uh, uh, you know, ha- the more fragmented and disparate your IT stack is, the more applications you have, the more potential threats there are.
0: Right, right. Yeah, that's a great, great point. Um, here's a question from um, Sam Graham on LinkedIn. And he, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. I, I don't believe you and I have ever discussed this, but I'd love to hear your thoughts, Darren. Uh, but do many companies still see ERP and digital transformation as being technology projects?
3: Um, you know, it's, it's interesting. I I, um, I think that, um, yes, there are still a bunch that see them as technology projects. I I, I reviewed a, a prospect of ours this morning um, where, you know, large company, very big digital transformation project, not a single executive involved in the project, mm-hmm. um, which is astounding to me. Um, and, and I think that the way companies should be thinking about it is that, that the the idea that you would think about a digital strategy or a digital transformation strategy um, is actually a bit of a misnomer. There is just the strategy because any company today that is not thinking about their strategy with a digital enablement, you know, they will not succeed. Um, And I think that that's super, super important. Um, So, you know, definitely companies still doing it, Sam, as incredible as that sounds. And I tell you what, my comment to the team was, I think we need to think long and hard about whether we compete for this business, because if we are successful, the likelihood that it will fail is incredibly high. Um, and, uh, you know, right now, I'm not worried that we lose the business. I'm worried we win it, because if we win this business and there is, n- there is no executive ownership, no executive sponsorship on this project, it will fail. Uh, but we see right. it still incredibly.
0: Yeah, it doesn't matter how great the software is, how well it's built, designed, deployed. If the executives aren't on board, that's going to be a that's going to be a recipe for disaster. Um, and actually, related to that, um, this is a good question from Chris over on LinkedIn. Uh, Chris asks, "Are all software vendors so similar that the strength of the implementation is now the most significant difference?" You just talked about executive buy-in and how important that is during implementation and how that can derail an implementation, even if you have great software. But in general, do you you agree with this commentary? Do you have any thoughts here, or software vendors being similar, that it really just comes down to the implementation?
3: I I think the the, the statement has some truth to it, but with a very large caveat, which is we we quite often are dealing with projects where because of the asset and service nature of of the customer, um, the the statement, all vendors have the capability to do this, is just not factually accurate. Um, And it's actually quite a dangerous narrative in that context specifically, um, because, you know, you know, a bunch of vendors today just don't have that capability, especially when you're talking about vendors that have, um, you know, dealt predominantly with what I would call administrative ERP in the past. Uh, but there are a bunch of organizations who do require administrative ERP solutions. And at that point, you're 100% right. Whether they, you know, if, if, if you're, a, you know, I don't know, a, if you're an organisation that doesn't have a bunch of assets and service centric requirements, um, or you're you, you know, and, and you're looking for a for a for a solution, then yeah, it it comes down predominantly to the implementation. I agree, and 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 maybe not just the implementation, but I'm a bit, as you've will heard from this, I'm a huge proponent of of that vendor customer relationship, um, and I think you know if if, if you procure at arm's length. Um, and, and you then find an implementation partner and you try and go off and do this without the vendor's guidance to make sure that the application is being used to its fullest extent and you're, you're making sure the the, the, the the system integrator isn't building capability that's on the roadmap for the release that you're actually going to go live on, um, or they're building stuff that actually um, the vendor intended to be done in a different way keeping that that kind of that that three, that tri party arrangement very tight is super important. Um, And making sure that you've got references that are very relevant, so that you know that the functional capability is there without a bunch of customization from the system integrator.
0: Right, right. Yeah, yeah, great, great point. And I think it's, you know, you really have to have both. I agree with your caveat, you have to have good software that fits and aligns with your business needs. But you also have to have a strong implementation, and it, and uh, it's price of admission, to use your your phrase from before. The price of admission is a software that's going to work and fit your business. Now, to actually realize that value, you're going to have to make sure you implement it well. let's see great point there. Um, so I want to get to this question that I just lost. Uh, where did it go? Um, here it is. So this is from um, Ratna on LinkedIn says that she loves the the analogy of the swimming pool, having done this as a project manager. Um, although I don't think you meant it as an analogy. I, I guess it sort of is an analogy because it actually was a swimming pool client that you were talking about. No, oh, but I meant um, it
3: as an analogy
0: too. <laughs> right, but, but I like where she's going with this there. She says this perfectly describes the plunge organizations will undertake. Nice description for upper management executives, this message so they give space and more importantly, supports uh, for success. I had to take the question off to be able to read the rest of it um off the screen here um so any thoughts there as far as just maybe coming back to that executive ownership thread and why that's so important to the success
3: yeah i mean look i had been um when i came to ifs i'd been involved in the erp space for my time at sap as i said i ran the global erp business i was involved with dozens of customers in in projects but i'd never implemented an erp solution for myself and when we came to ifs ifs um historically had been quite fragmented um, and we had a number of instances of IFS, but it was effectively a, a, a very fragmented, multiple versions, highly customized because of the, the decentralized approach. Uh, when I came in as CEO, we made the decision to implement our own software on the latest version, brand new you know, Greenfields implementation. And, and my own CIO, um, a guy called Sal Laher who is an industry veteran and has has been around ERP for for many decades outside of IFS. Um, It was an interesting journey for me as a CEO to go on with Sal as my CIO, almost, you know, teaching me what it was like to do it ourselves, really, uh, you know, drinking our own champagne or eating our own dog food, depending on which analogy you want to use. Um, and, um, and, And it was very, very interesting. The number of conversations I was involved in where, um, so I would have a business user saying, I need this capability to go live. And Sal was saying, no, you don't. We can do it in this way. We need to go live as we'd planned. And then we will iterate through the coming releases in order to get you what you need. But we can absolutely manage it. And I had many, many of those discussions through the implementation. And the, the result was that we, we, we did a full implementation of IFS at the time we were maybe 700 million in revenue. Uh, operating in 50 odd countries, Uh, we did a full implementation, including HR, CRM, uh, finance, procurement. Um, We did the entire project in six months from the start of the project to full go live, Big Bang go live in six months. Mm. And it was about those compromises. It was about interrogating those decisions. And without my sponsorship, it would never have happened. It really took me as the CEO, Going into those sessions and going, let's listen to what both of you are saying and going, okay, look, that can wait for the next release. And and that's what we did. We then iterated through the coming releases, uh, but we we got the the go live. As is always the case, 80% of the value was in that that first go live. Um, and the project was hugely successful. And the, the trick is to try and make sure that we push for that executive sponsorship um and and drive that kind of eighty percent of the value from the from the first. 20% of, of, of the project.
0: We're here with Darren Roos, the CEO of IFS Software, having a conversation about fallacies and misconceptions related to digital transformation. We've got a lot more to cover. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control.
3: If you are aiming for transformation success, turn a third stage consulting group. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com.
0: Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 103. We're here at Darren Roos from IFS Software talking about common fallacies and misconceptions about digital transformation. Um, and, and just building on this, by the way, we have a we have a series of industry heavy hitters that are rolling into the the stream here. So I've got to get to their questions. Uh, one one is Peter Robinson, um, who I, I've known uh, of for a while now. Uh, but Peter's comment for you, Darren, is I think it's so refreshing and telling to hear a vendor CEO state that he will consider walking away from a prospective client because of the risk of failure that lies on the client side. Too many too many end users abdicate all responsibility for their digital transformation to their vendor and system integrator. So i think that's a, a good point point. and, and um, you know i think that's a, a key thing that he's hitting on though that maybe goes a bit further than what even what you were saying darren which is you have to have executive buy-in and support but it's also not just having executive buy-in and support for support's sake it's also just taking ownership and control of the project and not abdicating responsibility to your outside third parties and i think that's that's really tempting for a lot of organizations to say darren you've got a solution that's going to help my business I trust you, you're the expert, just sort of go figure this out for me and help me help help me just just go put the technology in and make my business better. Uh, it sounds easy, right? But it's, it usually doesn't well, work that way.
3: It's interesting because if you think about the origins of ERP and the the, the business process re engineering that, that was a precursor to your first generation of ERP projects, um, it's it's almost a new thing. Where we outsource this responsibility to the vendor and the system integrator. That that's not where it started. It started with companies looking at their own processes and really focusing on optimization as a first phase, and then getting technology as an enabler. Um, and then, unfortunately, you know, the wild west emerged, and we got you know uh, the the multi billion ERP projects. Um, where the money was made by system integrators that were effectively rewriting the application um, and taking it from being a, a cot solution to being something that was almost unrecognizable. And that's where, you know, you had a generation of failures. Um, and, and, and now we're moving back towards, um, you know, something that is much more fit to standard and, and, and custom off the shelf. But, but that doesn't mean that the business isn't responsible. Um, and, and it is super important that the business is working on streamlining those processes to make sure um, that, that it fits, the, that, that, that there is a meeting of the application and, and the business processes.
0: Right, right, absolutely. And uh, John Reed is on the line. I don't know if you know John, but he's from Diginomica, a, a very well known influencer in the space. His comment for Peter uh, did they ask that previous question is uh, bingo. There's absolutely a customer responsibility that is is often overlooked. And I want to segue into a question from another uh, industry heavy hitter that is all related here. Uh, This is from Marcus Harris, who's a a software licensing attorney uh, at Taft Law, uh, someone who's been on the show multiple times on on this podcast. Uh, But his question is, how do you ensure tight vendor management when the customer is inexperienced with implementing software? and probably hasn't done an implementation in years. So you've got these executives that think that they can just abdicate responsibility to, to you or any other software vendor. How do you, how do you get that point across to an organization when they haven't done this before and they don't really know what they're doing necessarily?
3: Yeah. So I think it, it, it comes down to two things. One is is that, um, something that, that was done a lot in the industry again, early on, and I think most vendors would say they still have a practice. Uh, but in reality, that it's been eroded certainly from a quality and, and capability perspective is this idea of, of value engineering and making sure that going into the project that there is clarity on where the value is coming from, whether that value is, is, is efficiency or, or revenue, increased revenue or risk mitigation, whatever it is, that there is a clear value statement and that there is a tight correlation between that value statement and how specifically the application is going to deliver that value. And and, and we do that. Um, and then I think what it is, is it's a case of making sure. And, and again, this is a it's quite a manual task, I guess, for my leadership team. And they had the experience with doing it, which is making sure that the customer is then bought into what is it going to take? And when I say the customer, I'm talking CEO, CFO, um, you know, ultimate executive sponsor, that they are going to be on the hook in the steering committees, um you know regular catch-ups um and you know it's interesting because we we as i say we we i i don't want to make it sound like i think that ifs has the answer to everything we we get loads of stuff wrong and 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 we as i say we we try and stay humble but if i think about the the number of of ceo and cfo interactions that i have today versus what i had in my in my sap days it's very different and what i saw was that at sap it was very much the, the center of power sat with the system integrator. And the reality is that the system integrators incentive is to customize the application, mm. the more customized the application is, the more hours they're going to build, the more revenue they're going to generate. But as a software vendor, as the OEM, I really want to go live and get onto the next project. That's my imperative. Um, so we tend to push very hard on customers to say, look, if we're not getting the executive sponsorship. Um, if we can't really get alignment on how we're going to capture this benefit, um, leveraging our business value engineering tooling, um, and, and we, have a, we have a tool which is a, a, a digital tool, value assessment, which then goes into our scoping tool, which goes into the application. So we've got a, a closed loop of how are we going to create value through into the application. If we can't get the executive buy in into that, then you know, it might not be a customer for us. And we walk away often. And, and, and that's because a failed project is a huge challenge you know we all know the the, the numbers right it's a happy customer is going to tell uh far less people than an unhappy customer is going to tell
0: right right absolutely and just to build on that that point about the closed loop the value engineering um this is a comment from john who by the way before i get to the comment he he might be as jaded or more jaded than i am and more skeptical of the industry so this this comment i think uh, says a lot coming from him but he says IFS has some of the best value engineering in the industry. Darren knows what he's talking about on this point. We need to have these type of metrics in real-time dashboards. If you can health check on your phone or watch, you must be able to do that with your project uh, real-time as well. Um, so, you know, great point. I think it's, you know, we take seriously, you know, I'm wearing a watch right now that just told me to start breathing, by the way. I just got buzzed that I'm not, I'm not breathing deep enough. I need to slow down. Um, so I've got my watch telling me this real-time that I need this to breathe. Um, but yet, I'm not taking the the same sort of rigor when it comes to a multi million dollar digital transformation that could affect that will affect my business for years to come, and I find that super interesting.
3: Well, I think the thing is is that you, I mean, you, you and I was going to say you'll be amazed. You won't because I know you've seen this, and many of your 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 um, your listeners and 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 viewers will be able to relate to this. But the number of customers that undertake a project like this without a a, a specific quantifiable business case is incredible. Um, and we see it all the time still. And and that's, you know, I, I you know, that's a really terrifying reality. Um and, and one that really sets them up for failure. And, you know, you, you you have to be able to measure it. You have to have real clarity on where that value is going to come from.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. I, I agree. Um, so a couple of comments here. This breathing really set set off some comments here. If you if you're if you about breathing, Eric, you'll panic. Just relax. I'm trying to relax. Like, you know, I just get worked up in these conversations. It's hard for me to uh, to take a deep breath. Uh, and then Kyler says, uh, "Congrats, John Reed." <laughs> Means a lot coming from Eric. Um, I don't know what that's supposed to mean, Kyler. Luckily, she works she works for Third Stage, so I'll, I'll ask her later what she meant by that. Um, <laughs> um, here's um, just a, another comment. I'm just sort of hitting some comments that aren't necessarily questions from the audience. But like Kasan says, "Good point in the in the incentive scheme that." I think it's the SAP SIs get,
3: oh, but it's, yeah. not, it's not just an SAP thing. It is it, it is an every system integrator thing. Uh, yes. At the end of the day, your, your system integrators are 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 paid for effort, and the more effort they expend, the more money they're going to make. And that, let me be clear, I'm not bashing system integrators. We 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 have a fantastic group of system integrators. Um, without our system integrators, we wouldn't be successful. They do by far the majority of our implementations. Um, but ensuring that those system integrators are incentivized correctly and that the process of appointing them uh, is clear, is, is, is extremely important. Um, and I, I think the industry's matured a lot. You, you know, you, if you think about the, you know, and, and Eric, I know you've spoken about this before on one of your uh, podcasts, the, 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 the biggest failures in ERP. You know when you when right. you look at those those are previous generations right we're not dealing with that now customers are much more savvy now um and you know hopefully no one's making that kind of mistake
0: yeah yeah i'd say a lot of them are more savvy but it's it's always fascinating to me how i see some of the same mistakes the same groundhog days sort of repeated mistakes now that i saw when i first started in in this industry 30 years ago so um so I sort of agree with you. <laughs> I think they generally there is a m- more of a savviness and more organizations are becoming savvy, but there's still a large subset that, that aren't.
3: Maybe not quite on the same scale as the likes of S. A. B. Miller or anything like
0: that. Right, right, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good point. The massive billion dollar plus failures, I think those are becoming less common, but it's the more of the moderate failures. I think we're, we're challenges or where organizations. Uh, but it are comes down
3: to everything that we've just discussed. It comes down to they picked the wrong tool, didn't make sure that the tool was, was fit for purpose, picked the wrong system integrator, didn't make sure that the vendor was still on the hook. Um, you know, I think those come down, uh, no executive sponsorship, probably the three biggest things to think you're wrong.
0: Right, right. Now here's, um, I'd love to get your comment or maybe some thoughts on this comment from John. He's uh, I think opening a, a potential Pandora's box here, which I like. Um, he says, it's a key point though, SIs have a responsibility to push back on over customized projects that accumulate tech debt. My hope is that Southwest Airlines meltdown will bring even more attention to the problem of technical debt. Maybe explain what are your views, technical debt in general? We don't have to talk about Southwest Airlines necessarily, but just technical debt in general, what is it? Why is it so important to overcome that? And how do you you navigate that whole thing in today's day and age?
3: Look, I think, let me just comment. I think that a a lot of um, organizations, the scale of Southwest and we, we come across a lot of them in, in our day-to-day operations. Um, you know, they, they've built their IT stacks over many generations. Um, they've come under enormous pressure, especially in recent times, um, to build capabilities um, that, that, that the moment demands. So if you think about what airlines have faced during COVID, uh, online booking, online reservations, just a different level of, of of service. It's it's become very front end loaded, and frankly, I don't think the the hype cycle around CRM and what Salesforce was doing necessarily helped. So massive focus on on the front end for for maybe a decade now, um, and what's happened in that time, unfortunately, because organisations have a limit to how much capacity you know they have to do projects, is that the back offices has struggled and and has suffered. Um, And I I won't name them, but I can think of another airline uh, that I've had some interaction with um, where, you know, they are a disaster waiting. It's not Southwest. They are an absolute disaster waiting to happen. And the executives know it. And there just isn't the money uh, and and organizational capacity to, to fix it. And it's been okay this year. And it was okay the year before. So maybe we can eke another year out of it. And it'll be somebody else's problem or, or a problem that we can face when we're not in, an, not in COVID or not in an economic downturn. Um, right. And that's, unfortunately, the reality for loads of customers. I remember meeting with a CIO many years ago who was in a, a, a manufacturing environment. He was running an old antiquated system that was out of support. He literally sat there and he said, you know what, I go to bed every night knowing that if the system falls over, we will never get it back up again. And this business will go out of business. I couldn't believe that he was telling me this. Yeah. Um, but that's the reality for, for, for some organizations. So, you know, I think um, it's very, very challenging is the answer. And there's no quick fix for it, right? It It, it is just extremely, extremely challenging.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, recognizing the risk, you know, one of the biggest lessons from Southwest Airlines is that they apparently downplayed or didn't fully realize or understand the risk of their technical debt and their legacy systems, and they thought maybe they're saving money by staying on on older systems and sweating the assets as the, you know, some of those asset intensive industries will, will focus on. But what ends up happening is you end up spending a lot more money. I, I guarantee that failure cost them a lot more money than if they would have gone through a transformation or, or at least started to address their technical debt years if ago.
3: News, if you put yourself in, in their shoes and, and you know the solution is a multi-year fix very hard to go. Yeah, I'm going to be the one to start the project. Um, and, and, and I'm going to spend all this money, knowing that we could be spending this money, and it could still fall over during the project. And we still we're going to spend the money and, you know, get all the trouble. So right. it's, 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 it's very, hard, very, very hard. And I think there are very few, very large organizations that don't have a ton of this situation. The question is just are they like a Southwest? where you know it's so much in the public domain and the impact is so public
0: yeah absolutely yeah and, and people people heard about it obviously i mean that's a that's a failure that affected a lot of a lot of people during the holidays so there's a lot of emotionally charged responses understandably to that to that failure um so i guess just a you know we could spend hours i feel like we spent all day on this this topic but unfortunately i don't think either you or i have the time to to, to do that but um I would like to maybe hear your thoughts on just backing up and knowing that these fallacies exist, knowing that these misconceptions about ERP systems and digital transformations exist. What next steps or what first steps would you recommend to an organization that's thinking about a digital transformation or planning a digital transformation in 2023?
3: Um look, I think I'm going to come back to my my fundamentals, right, which is be very clear on on why you're doing it. I think um you know, any digital transformation has to be underpinned by a, by, by a strategy, um, and make sure that that the technology is going to enable that strategy, and that you're very clear at a very granular, basic level why you're doing it. Um, and I think that's what it comes back to. And I, I want to keep it fairly abstract at that level because it's so nuanced by industry. Um, and maybe if we if we correlate it back to um, to uh, you know this technical debt question, and I, I think you know, this might not be popular. But I think Southwest are a great organization, right? I think they're, a, they're, a, they're a really smart bunch of people. I think they do some amazing stuff. And I, and I think that they were very unfortunate with what happened. Um, mm. Just as an aside. Um, right. But I, I think that what, what I do see, and it's probably the biggest challenge with digital transformation is, is that, you know, some customers may have some big issue over here. Maybe it's technical debt. But the digital transformation project has nothing to do with that. Now they're: how do I drive a new channel to market, or how am I going to enable servitization, or how am I going to, uh, you know, open up, uh, uh, you know, my 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 e-commerce capability? That becomes the, the 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 catchy, exciting thing that people are getting excited about, and they neglect the hygiene stuff. Um, and right. I think that that's very important. The that I think we're we're mature enough now that we need to recognize that we can't, we need to get a little bit past the hype cycles and the the stuff that sounds sexy and get into what is it gonna to take to build a healthy, robust um, technology platform on which you can evolve your business because the two are so tightly linked as, as we seen in the Southwest example. Well.
0: Yeah, example. Yeah, well said. And, and technology and digital transformations don't have to be super sexy. I mean, they, they can be basic, they can be fundamental you can focus on automation and and um, streamlining your processes. I mean, even though that's, some might say that's old school, we should be thinking further than that. We'll get that stuff right. And if you do that really well, then you can start thinking about all the sexy stuff after that.
3: You're hundred percent. It, it is like a house. You need a strong foundation um, and then you evolve. And I suppose like with any maturity uh, index, you, you, you want to move up. You start at the bottom and move up. And, and the problem is that too many projects are trying to start at the top. And then thinking right. they can fix it coming down and it doesn't work that way. Because if you can't uh you know, if you can't get stock reliably in reliably into your warehouses or you can't keep your manufacturing facility going, then frankly, you don't need a bunch of sales. Um, you know, Tesla maybe is a great living example of that at the moment, where you know, yes, great innovative model. I'm a big Tesla fan. I own two of them myself, but you know, frankly, you know, supply issues have been Forever, um, so I think it's 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 um, build it build the house from the bottom up. Get the foundation right, um, and and you will get there. But if you try and start at the end and, and work back, it's not going to work.
0: Absolutely, that's that's well said. And uh, I I have I have a great closing comment here from Sam Graham uh, on LinkedIn. He says he hopes that Darren as a Springbok springs back to another session here soon. Uh, <laughs> All right. Thank you, Darren. Great conversation. Good to have you on the show and really interesting stuff. And uh, I really appreciate how balanced that discussion was and how uh, Darren was not afraid to talk about the good, the bad, the ugly of digital transformations in the ERP space. In fact, we're going to unpack a few of those threads here in just a moment. Um, We'll come right back after a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control.
3: If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to 3rd Stage Consulting Group. 3rd Stage's independent and technology-agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organisations through their transformation pitfalls and risks.
0: Hello, welcome to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 103. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham. You can find new episodes every Wednesday on LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Thank you for being here today. Um, We just had Darren Roos on the show, the CEO of IFS Software. We talk about misconceptions and fallacies in the digital transformation and ERP software space. What were some of your takeaways from that conversation, Kyler?
1: Well, one of my biggest takeaways, which is probably not what you're expecting, was just the overall um, great message of the Inner Wings Foundation that he mentioned, um, that he founded with, I believe, his wife. So if you haven't looked at that, I actually spent some time this morning chickening out, bought some books for my own daughter. Um, so it's, it's a great oh, cool. message to be able – they're on Amazon, shameless plug, once again um, – and authored by the organization and and have such a a great core message. So I think that's a a really beautiful cause um, to be involved in. And he's one of our only guests that has really ever mentioned a nonprofit outside of being a CEO of a global company, which usually people lead with that. So I think that that was wonderful that he kind of layered that in. So just a, a little bit of plug for that is definitely go check it out and and see some of the great resources they have there for just overall girls in STEM and and young children in STEM as well.
0: That's awesome! I didn't know they had books and stuff like that available, so that's good to know.
1: Yeah, they have a couple of them. We bought the Magic Box, so we'll come back with a, a book review because um, I know okay. everyone's interested in in my opinion. No, I'm sure. I'm sure it's excellent. Um, but we went ahead and bought <laughs> some because it's a important cause certainly but overall kind of switching gears to talk about the overall content of the interview i think it it's a great conversation and a very refreshing outlook that we see from our vendor partners to understand their overall own biases and i i think a lot of people were struck by the his comments um Darren's you know overall insight around some people don't match the software some organizations don't match the functionalities, and having the power to say that and being okay with saying that um, is something that's so important for the overall success of not only um, IFS, but also for business organizations. It's it's something, a, a line of conversation and a narrative that we don't often have. Many times our our client community engages an independent third party partner like Third Stage because there's that lack of transparency and a need for almost an overall audit of understanding if it is a good fit.
0: Right. Yeah, it's very true. And I think um, back to the uh, question we talked about in the opening segment, you know, the the uh, audience questions. That is a common bias in the space. Is just you know that that bias is hard to see through. And if you don't have any counterpoints or any unbiased or objective opinions about what you should do and how you should go about your transformation, it it just, you're going to go with the the only option you have, which is going to be the biased answer.
1: Absolutely. Um, And understanding your overall competencies in an industry, like Darren mentioned, aerospace, aerospace and defense, for example, and IFS competencies in that overall industry, that's also really important so that you can understand where to best support and kind of grow out that overall network.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
1: I wonder if you, how do you go about picking the C- CEOs from, from software industry? Because just a little look behind the court- curtain, um, Eric has a lot of people asking specifically in, in the software space to be able to speak to his audience. So I wonder if you could kind of give us some some insight in how you vet those guests to make sure they're a good match. Um, and they're going to have transparency. Like Darren did an excellent job of having that, um, overall lens and insight on this interview.
0: Yeah, it's, um, well, it started off, um, with the, um, the CEO of Odoo and, um, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I wanted to have him on the show just cause he's a really interesting person. And I had met him before, talked to him before. I think the product's really interesting. So it was just sort of a, I sort of tested it out with him because I I thought, you know, people that listen to this show and watch my YouTube channel seem to be really interested in in Odoo and open source software. So I thought, why not have, you know, one of the pioneers of that on the show. And then uh, Lisa Pope, who's the president of Epicor software being the second one, I just knew her, you know, I've known her for a long time. And she's, we sort of hovered in the same orbit for 20 some years, both being in the same industry. Um, and then with, with Darren, I didn't know Darren really before having him on the show, but I had seen him speak at an IFS conference. I try to go to a couple vendor conferences each year just to you know keep my ax sharp, if you will, understanding what's going on with the, the software vendors. And I, a couple of years ago, I went to the IFS conference and he spoke and I just thought he's a really good speaker. And I really liked how he, he didn't really sugarcoat things. I, I always felt like you know, even at the conference where his job is to promote IFS and to talk about how great IFS is, he did a great job of that, but he also talked about what they're not good at. And he's really candid and transparent about, we're not a good fit for everyone. Here's where we're a good fit. Here's where we're not. And I really appreciated that. And so I felt like he would be a, a good sort of a transparent or honest guest to have. Um, and so, yeah, I, I would love to have more guests on the show that, that meet those criteria, uh, in particular, uh, Larry Ellison, who I'm, I'm at least, uh, two To three percent sure is not watching or is watching the show. Um, but uh, him uh Elon Musk
1: are watching it together for sure. They're yeah, they're having, having a watching, watch
0: party, <laughs> they're having a watch party at Elon's mansion in wherever <laughs> he lives. And uh, there, I'm sure, but I would love to have both actually both them on the show. But Larry Ellison, uh, is my uh, one. I, I'm determined to get him on the show at some point. It might take a year or two and might take millions of views of this show before he'll consider it, but uh. I would love to have, I just like to have interesting CEOs that have diverse perspectives. And, and again, as long as we're not turning into a commercial for any one software, I'm, I'm comfortable with just about anyone that, that kind of has, has something to say.
1: And I would say we talk a lot about executive and company alignment and how that really starts from a top-down approach. When we deal with IFS team members, they often take the same approach of wanting to support our overall content, support our ability to um, you know, bring out a message from an industry perspective. And usually we don't get that. Usually we get a, this is wrong or you're wrong about this or, or all of these different hate mail from our vendor partners. Um, but the IFS team seems to have the same thing, the same sort of mindset and approach that Darren talked about in offering a service and a value of support via, um, you know, their system, as opposed to an aggressive nature of kind of shoving it down a business's pipeline um, through different types of, of really aggressive of sales messaging.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, the thing that, um, great point. and back to the, when I first met or, or was exposed to Darren at that conference a couple of years ago, the thing that stuck out, and the thing that really resonated with me was how he was so, not flippant, but he was was kind of flippant about cloud versus on-prem. He didn't seem to really care. He even said in the presentation I saw, he said, we don't care what our customers do, whether they're on-prem or cloud or some sort of hybrid. Um, He's like, we just want what's best for the client and we'll sell you software in either model. Whereas, and that runs counter to what a lot of vendors are doing now, which is we are going to push the heck out of the cloud systems. We're going to stop paying commission to our sales reps on anything that's not cloud-based um we're gonna you know sort of disparage any just the whole idea of on-premise gets disparaged by you know some of these big cloud providers and the industry analysts that they pay to do the same so you end up hearing this negative messaging around on-prem and how cloud's the future and if you're not on the cloud you're dying and all this stuff whereas he came out and said it, maybe maybe it's the right thing for you maybe it's not but whatever you want we've got different deployment options so i think that flexibility and that uh, back to that hybrid concept in the in the opening segment that you talked about, I think that's all that's all really important. You need to have that flexibility and multiple options.
1: Yeah, and just the overall intention of being dedicated to the business's goals, not your sales goals or your new system that you know your your overall stakeholders are trying to to get more money around. Um, I think that that makes a lot of sense. Something that I wanted to just bring up as a trend from both Darren and then Brad Feeks, as we we mentioned, that was last week's episode, around best of breed and specifically integrations. Something that they both kind of said is now everything is best of breed because of not only the acquisitions of, you know, the smaller companies into the bigger companies, but also just understanding that there's no one system anymore, and there needs to be an interoperability strategy behind all of those. And it's almost interesting because we we were having this argument of and uh, of or, like which one should you go with? And now it seems to be you should go with integration and inter- interoperability. But with the lens of to quote Clifford Martin from our um, third stage, Africa and EMEA team is with a, a professional skepticism to know that that integration plan not, might not be fully baked on the system integrator or vendor side.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think uh, it's a good point. And I think the big players will continue to acquire the smaller players. But what that's going to do is, yes, it's going to create more scale and size for the large vendors, the large ERP providers, but it's also going to create more of a best of breed model within those vendors. And so that while they may be saying that they're selling a single integrated system, they're really not. And I, that was part of what, what Darren and I talked about was uh, how do you see past that messaging around uh, saying that it's a single integrated system when really it's not. And I, so I think you're going to see more and more of that. SAP has shown signs of that in recent years, Oracle for the last 20 or more years has had that acquisition minded best of breed strategy where they go out and buy Seabull and PeopleSoft and, um, JD Edwards and NetSuite, you know, all these different systems. So, you know, Oracle can't really credibly say that they're a single integrated system because they've, they've done it by acquiring all these different systems and trying to piece it together. Same with Microsoft and, you know, a lot of these bigger vendors.
1: Absolutely. And it it seems as though I almost feel sorry for our client community uh, could, because there's just so much more that you need to be able to internalize and understanding That there this is a very complex web of being able to create business value out of your technology or your overall digital enterprise in general. So I I want to kind of put you on the spot, Eric, because in our fourth quarter here at, at Third Stage, we've experienced a massive shift into needing that independent advisor from very large businesses because of the inability to understand all of the different messaging and agendas for vendors. And we've always done that, but it seems as though there's a massive shift to needing that overall PMO or project oversight from an independent standpoint. So I wonder if you could kind of just give us uh, maybe a a look behind the curtain to what's kind of happened as far as that evolution and what third stage has experienced.
0: Sure. Well, part of it is is strategic on our side. So we're you know, we're focusing on on really emphasizing our PMO, our, our independent technology agnostic PMO capabilities for larger organizations in particular. We still have small and mid sized clients as well, but our, our client mix has really shifted pretty significantly in the last year. Um, but the other part of it, too, it's not just a strategic effort on our part as an organization, it's also looking behind the curtain of what's going on in the industry. And I have a pretty strong emerging opinion that the level of distrust in the digital transformation and enterprise technology space as it is at an all time high, because you have, you, first of all, there's always been sort of an underlying distrust because, you know, everyone's off for themselves or just trying to sell their software and whatever, but you kind of saw it for what it was. Yeah. If I call SAP or if I call Accenture or Deloitte, they're going to, they're going to pitch me on, you know, something that's uh, very specific and that's fine. But what's happening now in more recent years is you get Microsoft and SAP, for example, I'd say they're the the two most guilty parties of this. But SAP and Microsoft are, in my opinion, just wrecking whatever uh, trust they had with their customers by saying, guess what, customer? You've been using, let's say, SAP ECC for the last 20 years or 15 years. Uh, Guess what, Microsoft Great Plains customer? You've been using Great Plains for however many years. You've got two years to get off that system, and we're going to stop this because we're going to discontinue it. So it's, in my opinion, it's extortion. I mean, you're, you're, it's absolutely unacceptable, highly unethical. It's, pro- it's the most unethical thing I've seen in this industry. And I thought it really couldn't get much more unethical as it was, but now you get these big software vendors who are really bullying their clients into going through digital transformations that they may or may not need to go through, but it's in the self-interest of the software vendor. And the reason they're doing this is because they want you to move to the cloud. They make a lot more money on cloud subscriptions than they did in the old on-premise model, the investors are rewarding the software vendors for doing more cloud business. If you look at um, anytime Oracle or SAP or Microsoft puts out their annual or quarterly earnings, there's a heavy emphasis on cloud growth. And the reason for that is because the investors love it. Investors love it. Therefore the organization loves it. Therefore they're going to push and and bully their clients into, into shifting off-prem into the cloud, which may or may not be the right answer for them. So that those Tactics and uh shenanigans from the uh the software vendors are really undermining trust in the industry, and I think distrust is an all time high. And back to your question, that's why organizations are looking for independent third parties like our team at Third Stage.
1: And with that, with technology truly influencing every piece of the organization, are the stakes higher?
0: They are, um, they're they're, they are higher partly because you know organizations are constantly changing anytime you go through a digital transformation, there's risk. And now with the world changing faster than ever with, with the pandemic and economic uncertainty, um, with employment and labor issues, and just all sorts of things that organizations didn't have to deal with at this magnitude since before the 2020s, um, now the stakes are higher. And, and then you add to the fact that technology is changing so quickly and there's so much upside opportunity and potential of new technology that if you don't invest in technology, you're missing out on those opportunities. So you've got sort of a double whammy here where it's higher risk, there's more at stake operationally, your business is changing. It can. You don't wanna bring your business to a standstill because you're going through a digital transformation. And at the same time, you don't wanna just sit still because you're falling further behind because technology is changing so quickly. So you're sort of getting hit on both sides or both fronts uh, as it relates to that.
1: Excellent. Well, I think that that's a really, kind of holistic view of what is happening from our standpoint, from what you see in our delivery team sees, and then also from the software vendor side. And it seems as though there's a lot of shifting parts. I think Darren did such a great job of understanding what a, a software partner should be and that supportive nature of, of what they could be and bring to the table. And, you know, I always am on the rainbows and unicorn side, but I will say that it is incredibly refreshing to see a leader really preach that ability to be a, a good strategic partner that supports the business agenda as opposed to just the software agenda. So um, I think the audience voted. I voted. We all would love a, a second interview with him um so thank you for for featuring him and thank you for darren to to joining us
0: yeah he's a great guest and i'd love to have him back on again and um along those lines too if anyone has suggestions for another vendor ceo or just guest in general i'm always open to that so be sure to reach out and comment on who you think we should have on the show besides elon musk and larry ellison which we're already we're already working on that um and actually, you know, this transition is pretty interesting because our next segment is going to involve a clip that an interview that I did with John Reed uh, last year. And John Reed made this transition super easy because he was in in the stream chatting in the previous segment with Darren Roos. Um, so it's just kind of a, a nice transition. He made it really easy for us here. Uh, he he had a couple comments that I referred to in that discussion. But we're going to play a clip that he and I did about a year ago as we were talking about tech trends as it relates to the upcoming 2022 at the time so we want to play the clip again largely because most of the stuff is still relevant but also because we now want to revisit those trends and talk about you know how relevant they are or aren't and what's changed in the last year so we're going to do that uh here in just a moment but first we'll take a quick break you're listening to transformation ground control
1: download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Play
2: with
0: the play with no Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 103. My name is Eric Kimberling, here with Kyler Cheatham. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday on YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and audio podcast platforms throughout the world. I'm excited for our next guest. We're going to actually play you a clip of an interview I did several months ago, actually over a year ago now, with John Reed, who's with a uh, web outlet called Diginomica, which is really good, by the way, if you haven't checked it out. It's spelled D-I-G-I-N, wait, Diginomica, <laughs> dot com. So Diginomica, and uh, that, that took me a minute. That was, I was trying to make it easier for everyone. But hopefully I didn't just confuse you by butchering it myself, but Diginomica. And, and what I like about it is not only is it a good way to keep up with tech trends and what's going on in the industry, but they've got a, a really unique style, I guess you'd say, in terms of how they write, the topics they cover. It's not biased. It's not um, It's not sugar-coated. It's, it's somewhat disruptive and controversial, like a lot of our content, even more so, I'd say, in many cases. So uh, check that out if you haven't. It's a really good website and it's one that I go to often. It's one of my go-tos. And uh, anyways, one of the most interesting people I think in the industry is is John Reed. He's someone I've known for a long time. We've had many interviews and conversations over the years and uh, always have a really good time with this. In fact, he's another one I'd love to have on the show here soon. Uh, but the reason we want to play this clip, it was, it was he and I talking about the tech trends for 2022 about this time last year. And we want to play you that clip again to, to, so we can revisit it, you know, First of all, a lot of these trends are still relevant now, if not most of them. Second of all, what's changed? What's evolved in these trends? And what can we learn as we think about what's new here in 2023? So let's roll the clip and uh, we'll, we'll unpack it here when we get through the, the discussion.
2: Primarily have been a publisher, uh, a journalist. Um, sometimes I've ran consulting and training practices, but for the most part, not. Um, but I think we've arrived at a lot of similar conclusions around projects and um, and, and I think we both don't mind being a little bit out uh, outspoken about what we've learned, particularly things like the the dangers of customers being over-dependent on mega SIs that don't have their best interests at heart and, uh, you know, v- vendor f- vendors flogging technology that that might really be, if not snake oil, not ready for prime time, things like that. I think you and I have a lot in common in terms of our desire to have a more practical and perhaps more jugular conversation about what it takes to be successful in this industry. Um, but anyway, that eventually found my way to Diginomica with some other cohorts about eight years ago. And we were basically disillusioned with a lot of stuff around how enterprise publishing was done, how enterprise media worked, how the enterprise analyst game worked. And we wanted to try to sort of disrupt that, I guess, by creating our own thing. Um, and uh, we, we've we had some good success with, with that. And so we're now eight years in. Um, I will say it still feels like startup a lot of the time. Some of that's good, some of that keeps me up at night, but, um, uh, but you know, I can tell you a little bit more about what the, what drives Diginomica, but that's sort of my main undertaking now.
0: Right. Yeah. And that's how a lot of my interaction and exposure to your, your thought leadership has been through Diginomica, uh, which you're co-founder of and also, uh, Enterprise irregulars Regulars is a, I think that's where I originally you know, first started interacting with you or sort of following you yeah. as a thought leader in the space. Um, so tell us, maybe just tell us a little bit about Diginomica for those that don't know, and, and maybe it will help for those that don't know how to spell it and how to find it, but it's D-I-G-I, or I'm sorry, D-I-G-I-N-O-M-I-C-A, so diginomica.com. And, and just to preface it, for those that don't know, it's a really good, uh, I would consider a very good agnostic and pragmatic source for enterprise technology transformation type stuff. I mean, you're, you know, you're, it's very easy to follow. It's very unbiased, um. And like I said, very practical. You're not sort of up in the clouds, uh, like a lot of analysts are, speaking foreign languages that don't apply to everyday uh, mm-hmm. realities. But maybe tell us a little, little bit about Diginomica. Why did you start it? What's the goal of the of what is it first of all, and why did you start it?
2: A couple of different reasons. Uh, we started it because we felt that most tech industry um, publications are pretty crap and pretty not in it enterprise focused as well. And we felt there was a need to provide um, context to enterprise news. Um, but one of the big things like the user experience, all the big tech sites is just so terrible, autoplay videos, pop ups everywhere, advertising game, chasing eyeballs, chasing viral stories, we wanted to build a business model that was centered more around providing real practical advice that enterprise customers, and people that have a stake in the enterprise can use. And I um, a big focus of, of Diginomica has been, you know, from the beginning, but really became this notion of, of transformation in the enterprise. And, you know, we're, we're advocates of transformation, but not in the way that vendors sell it. We're advocates of it in the in the sense that we think that there's a success to be had on the other side of, of the pursuit of transformation in a corporate context, but it's not just technology, it's culture, it's process, it's people, it's everything. And there's a lot of very good reasons for that. Uh, I think uh, people are more and more receptive to that message, obviously. The last year and a half certainly helps uh, in that regard, though it's obviously been a tragic circumstance. So it's not something we wanted to happen. But, but there's that sense in which, like, um, you know, we, we do need to do business differently if we want to stay agile enough to compete. And so, so we really look at that from a large enterprise perspective primarily. And, and that's sort of driven our publication um, since, since we started
0: right yeah and you guys just put out you know massive amounts of content you cover so much so many different nooks and crannies of of the enterprise space i'm always fascinated by how much you guys you know it's it's not just sap or oracle or microsoft you're kind of you're covering the whole spectrum of all types of technologies and implementation best practices and lessons and um and just keep i, I read it a lot of times just to keep up to date on what's going on you know who bought you know what vendor acquired what software and you know, what's going on with some of the vendors, you guys are really good at covering more of the newsworthy type stuff too, in addition to the the more opinionated type stuff.
2: Yeah, and you know, part part of our goal is that there's so much noise around stuff. And so we want people to be like, well, if I read just one article to really understand what this news means, then maybe it would be an article from us where we can try to provide some context to that. And that's always the goal. Look, we don't always succeed. I mean, not every article that we publish is brilliant, but, but, but we do try to focus on people who are very experienced and understand the enterprise and and aren't afraid to take a position most of our articles aside from customer stories which we do quite a bit of as well most of our articles have a take where we where the writer takes a position at the end of the article on what 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 they're seeing and we think that's important to put a stake in as far as what does this mean and what do i think this is a good or bad move and why um we don't pretend to be above the fray uh if you look at our site we are we are uh our partners include a number of vendors and some of them we we cover their information um we're rigorous about disclosure we we think that transparency and and how you're funded is a really really big part of things and so that's a key every one of our blog posts has relevant disclosures in it when we do have any vendors that are involved that we do business with and so um you know we don't pretend to be like better than the business i mean everyone in this business is getting paid by someone but we do try to um rise above that and also you know have strong words even for those that we we do business with, and one thing we tell vendors we work with is that we're still going to criticize you, and we're still going to raise points and issues that we think you need to think about. Because, you know, um, the other thing that is just really important, and this is something that I believe, I think Diginomica as a group believes this too, but this is something I believe very strongly is that not enough enterprise projects get across the finish line in a way that we could call successful. I mean, you you uh, you've been an expert witness in a lot of situations so you know how how wrong these these products can go when they really go wrong. But I find most projects are actually fairly mediocre and and don't achieve a lot of the promised benefits and I think everyone in this industry has a collective responsibility to change that and so that is a driving focus. Um, but I also think that humor is important too. So if you want to get a flavor for that, I would recommend starting with my weekly enterprise hits and misses column, which is really me at my most unbridled that comes out every Monday morning. And that's me taking snarky shots at things, but also trying to put the week's enterprise news in, in context.
0: Yeah, every, every time, uh, every time I see that you've tagged me in one of those, and, and I know you've covered something I've written. I always I have a moment of flattery, but then I have a moment of fear of like, is what's he going to say though? It might be, it might be positive. He might be saying he agrees with me, but there's times where you've put stuff out and you're like, Hey, yeah, here's an interesting tape. Totally disagree. Here's what I think, you know, which I appreciate. I, yeah. I I like how you, you're not afraid to sort of either build on a topic or challenge it or, you know, provide a, a different perspective. And I, that's why I enjoy reading your stuff. And for those on the live stream here, if you haven't checked out Diginomica, it really is a good source. I mean, it's uh, like I said, newsworthy, uh, very good opinions. And every article I read from you, there's at least two to three times throughout the read that I will laugh out loud at some of the stuff, (laughs) some of the stuff you say, cause some of it is just so honest that it's funny in a way It's like, I can't believe he's actually saying that it's absolutely true, but I can't believe he's saying it or it's just flat out humor that you're using. Uh, So you have a very unique uh, writing style that that I enjoy. So I think others here on the live stream would probably appreciate it too. Um, So you cover a lot of stuff. You, you, you know, you see a lot of, uh, you know, like I said, a lot of vendors, a lot of trends in the market. What are, you know, if you just step back and look at all the stuff you're covering right now, you know, what gets you most excited about the the space right now? Is there anything that just kind of pops out at you? It's like, Hey, this is a really big deal or maybe a hidden gem of a, a trend or something that's happening out there that the mm-hmm. rest of us aren't really paying attention to. Or what, what are some of those things that excite you? that's happening out there.
2: Well, I'm excited by two things. One is kind of classic and one is kind of like more new stuff. I mean, the thing that ex- excites me in a classic sense is conversations like we're having today where where we can be very informal and like honest about what's really happening in the enterprise. And, and I never get tired of that. Like I whether it's a dinner at a trade show or, or if you get lucky enough to go to an online event where there actually is a forum for that. Um, I think like people putting heads together and like genuinely sharing their experiences and trying to solve problems. Like to me, that, that never gets old. But as far as like trends are concerned, I'm, I'm a little, uh, uh grouchy with a lot of trend stuff because like when you've been around for a long time you see like uh you know I always want to know how is this thing different than the last thing so in other words like digital transformation one of my first questions on that was like I challenge anyone who used that phrase to tell me why it's different than change management because we're using that phrase now we're using this new phrase so why is that different? Um, same thing with AI ops, for example. Okay. That sounds cool, new and different. Well, how is that different than just workflow automation, for example? Um, so all of that stuff like, like, um, really bothers me. And so I'm not like a futurist, which is kind of what you and I were talking about before is like, I don't like to get tagged by that label. Cause I get really irritated by, you know, for example, uh, so many people got burned by blockchain and spent so much money on blockchain that I don't think they're ever going to see ROI on. Not that it will It won't eventually mature and have use cases but it's just one thing i don't like fanning the hype of stuff but having said that i do like what modern enterprise technology is shaping up as because i do think the technology is getting better and and i think that reinforces some very interesting things like for example this year i've done a couple of stories where you call it low-code ERP if you want. Low-code doesn't really matter that much as a buzzword, but the idea is basically putting power in the hands of business users to basically automate their own workflows and do stuff without having to go through IT. And and the same thing goes with things like reporting and analytics, where there used to be all these IT bottlenecks around all of this type of stuff. And and, and these days you simply can't afford to wait till the end of the month or the year to get certain kinds of reports or data or to, or to build like a new little app or something. And the more I see business users being able to take that power in their own hands, the more excited I get about where enterprise software could ultimately wind up as because so far it really hasn't gotten there as much as the marketing folks would have you believe. But that's what kind of gets me excited is seeing business users truly engaged.
0: Yeah, that's, that's super interesting in, in use or taking the power back almost, you know, t- taking the power back from IT and, and also taking the power back from uh, consultants or system integrators. I mean, because a lot of times these companies, they get so dependent on the big SIs or outside consultants that they can't function without them because they, they just have this black hole of lack of knowledge that the SI or the consultants have. But now we're kind of shifting that to make it where you don't necessarily need that level of outside support.
2: I totally agree, and 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 in case people think I'm kind of like criticizing I, it and and kind of and, and casting a negative light on it, I'm not at all. In fact, I think I just did a use case about a, a CIO who is really looks like he's really going to be able to deliver for the business in the medical industry, with with their vision of more connected care for patients, which is a really good thing for everyone, and 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 this CIO is getting much more engaged with business outcomes because he feels he has the technology to deliver on that, and. Like to me, I actually get depressed when I run into companies that don't have any IT. Now, granted there are some startups that have a cloud first thing and they gotta move fast. They don't wanna build IT, but in general, I like IT as a differentiator. I like the idea of, of people in IT working on differentiated projects, embedding uh, their their technology into smart devices or, or, or building customer facing apps or doing really cool stuff that impacts their business. I, I love that vision of IT. I just don't like the vision of IT as like, and of course, security and compliance, all that stuff matters also. But I just don't like that vision of IT is like the bottleneck that prevents business users from getting things done.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it also, you know, forces the business users to connect the dots between the technolo- technological needs and what those business needs are. Totally. And they're they're best equipped to do that for sure. Um, what about, um, and by the way, uh, before I ask you this next question, um, please feel free to, uh pop in any questions that the audience has here too ultimately that's what we want to get to are, are your questions and uh, again it's it's really the good news with having you on the show there's no one topic that you know we need to focus on you're, you're kind of you are kind of that broad view of the marketplace here so anything that's vendor specific or you know trend specific implementation best we'll practices <laughs>
2: between
0: yeah, you and me
2: to be able to come up with something so yeah well
0: <laughs> if we can't then we probably shouldn't be doing what we're doing you know if we can't come yeah, up exactly. with some sort of some sort of answer. So please do uh, submit your questions here. Um, But what about um, maybe let me go the opposite direction of what I just asked you and talk about what are those trends or buzzwords that you think right now are are the most overhyped or that an enterprise technology buyer should be the most leery of? I know you mentioned blockchain a little bit, but what what are some of your thoughts there? Uh, Well, I mean, a lot of
2: these buzzwords do represent topics that are worth reckoning with it's just you have to be wary about immediately opening up your wallet and feeling like you can't be successful without it Um, one that gets a lot of debate right now is customer data platforms that's huge on the on the cx side Um, and so the question then becomes like is this new and different than the than the data integration activities we've undertaken in the past um you know and and so you need to really take a hard look at that and will will we get a better result like um you know integrating all your customer data sounds wonderful but then think about well what about our finance data and what about the rest of our corporate data that we may need visibility into our supply chain data how can you serve customers if you don't have visibility into your supply chain so these 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 acronyms like CDP, you have to be really really careful when vend- when vendors start glomming onto that because they're doing it partially because they're going to sell sell a bunch of stuff to you. Um, you know, I think we have to be really careful with AI. Um, there's all kinds of problems with AI. Um, a lot of AI tools ship uh, in problematic ways that perhaps include um, biases. We see that a ton in HR do a search on AI recruitment controversy, and you'll find all kinds of stuff around companies that tried AI tools for recruiting and found that they were actually screening qualified applicants or not including diverse applicants for various reasons. So there's there's always an underbelly to these technologies. It doesn't mean that they're bad. It just means they deserve a, a close, uh, close look. So I, I don't know that I would say any of them I mean, blockchain's a little bit of a special case because it was so hyped when there were just no use cases, and I'm still waiting to do my first live production scale enterprise blockchain story. I keep right. telling vendors like, "Please send me your 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 live production story." Nope, but we've got this great POC, which is proof of concept. Um, well, we've been doing POCs in blockchain now for five or six years. Um, and so that, you know, that's, that's obviously technology that I get a little particularly wary of just because, you know, the, the use cases aren't there yet.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way to look at it. I think, uh, I agree with you, by the way, I think there's so many cool technologies out there and blockchain is one of them, but you, you have to take it all with the grain of salt and recognize it. Even if you do commit to a certain technology, whether it's a, a type of technology or even a certain vendor or, or a certain specific, uh, software solution. There's always an underbelly to it, like you said, and I think that's true for any any solution out there. Okay, we're here playing a clip with John Reed from Diginomica talking about some of the tech trends in 2022 headed into 2023. We're gonna continue the conversation when we come back, but first we'll take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control.
1: Are you looking to stay ahead of the curve in the ever-changing landscape of digital transformation? then you need our newly released 2023 Digital Transformation Report. This comprehensive report covers the latest trends, technologies, and strategies to ensure your digital transformation is optimized for success. The 2023 Digital Transformation Report is packed full of proven methodologies and insights from experts in the independent digital transformation field. You'll also receive practical insights on how to implement digital transformation strategies within your unique organization. This free report is available for download on our website at thirdstage-consulting.com under our thought leadership section.
0: Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 103. We're playing you a clip of John Reed from Diginomica and I talking about enterprise tech trends. We're getting a few comments or questions here um, from the audience, so maybe I'll jump in here uh, first. Is a comment that it's worth noting here, and you alluded to this a minute ago, John. But um, Greg mentions here that John owns Cloud ERP Friday afternoons here on LinkedIn. <laughs> So, it's so a will plug for your, you have a show that you do on. Oh on- yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: That's, it's usually at four Eastern though. I'm probably not going to do it today because I wanted to focus on this show. So, but, but yeah, usually Fridays at four four thirty 30 have kind of a blowout. It's not always about cloud ERP though. I do a fair amount of CX stuff. Mostly I just interview independent thinkers in the enterprise and see where the conversations go. It's, it's not unlike this format. So.
0: Very cool. Okay. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll be sure to check that out uh, for the audience there. Um, Another comment that uh, uh, I've dropped a few comments on G- Diginomica over the years, all taken in good stride. So another another fan of your your publication there or your your outlet there. Uh, yeah, here's a question: What are the what are the API integration best practices for before, during, or after implementation? Provided that the client has a, quite a few best of breed systems. So that's a very specific question. We're we're, we're jumping right in here, going going to go straight into wow. the weeds, the API integration. I don't know. If a, I just well, a actually really, I'm
2: glad you brought, the, I'm glad you raised that. And what's one interesting thing, just by the way, is I was going to say another buzzword I'm very wary of is multi-cloud. And, and I was just discussing this the other day and how I like the idea of multi-cloud environments. But the problem becomes that... Um, that the tools to allow customers to easily move workloads between clouds just haven't delivered on the multi-cloud promise. So that's one I am I would advise being very wary of as a term. But the idea of like avoiding lock-in is always a really good discussion to have. As far as APIs are concerned, I mean, the, the, the thing about a- APIs is that they are a step forward from classic point-to-point integration, but um, you do need to be conversing with the vendors that are responsible providing for providing those APIs and understanding what the impact of it is, and also your technology team. Not all APIs are created equal. Some of them are more robust and have more business content and are more readily usable. Others will get you into trouble if you don't have certain standard configurations. And I know you cover this a lot in your blog, but if you get over customized, even and you can do this even with cloud software, sometimes it can affect those API integrations going forward one of the biggest things you need to you need to ask about with with the vendors around apis is you know what is the testing going to look like with these apis going forward could they break if so how and and because just because an api works today doesn't mean it's going to work three months from now when when a number of vendors have updated their software or a year from now likewise so i think the biggest thing about apis is to realize that they're not some magic solution and in fact like I believe that if certain vendors work very closely together on a lot of projects, that they need to go need to go beyond APIs and provide a, a deeper level of 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 sophisticated integration. One one good example of that would be Salesforce, just because they are a partner of ours. So take it for what that's worth. But but so many so many customers want to integrate whatever they're doing with Salesforce, especially like in the ERP space or whatever. Um, so I think it's very important to ask about what kind of dedicated integration you have and what the relationships are between those vendors. Do those vendors talk to each other at all around their API strategies and their integration strategies? So, I mean, I'm not, I've am not i never been on an API project, so you have to take that with a grain of salt, but those are the kinds of questions I'd be asking. I don't know if you have anything to add to that.
0: Yeah, I, no, I, I think it's absolutely true. And especially in today's day and age where I think that whole best of breed concept is becoming more acceptable and more common you know 10 20 years ago it was almost a bad word to say you know i'm gonna have two or three or four different systems and time all together but now the, the tools are generally flexible enough and the architectures are open enough that you can you can do that more realistically but you know you still have to make sure it's all going to work together and that you've clearly defined your data strategy and you, you understand where the data is going to reside and how you're going to manage that master data where you're going to manage it so there's just a lot of variables that need to be addressed but not to say you shouldn't do it it's just a Back to the point of the underbelly or the risks. You know, you've got to you've got to be able to manage those pieces.
2: Beware well. of seamless integration, folks.
0: Yes, seamless
2: yeah. integration. That is one of the phrases that always scares me.
0: Yeah, and it, you know, I it, I had a call with a client this morning actually, who is uh, a customer of, of SAP, S four HANA, a space that I know you know uh, very well as well, and, and we both have histories with. Uh, being in the SAP world early in our careers or earlier in our careers. Um, But they, he had talked about how um, with SAP, it's actually easier. In his opinion, it's easier to integrate non-SAP products than it is to integrate SAP's own products to each other, which I thought was super interesting comment. Ouch. Yeah. So I thought, well, that's because you would assume, you know, if I'm buying a bunch of stuff from one vendor, it's going to seamlessly integrate, right? I mean, it makes sense, you, you would think, but then you get into the reality of it and it doesn't quite work that way.
2: Well right uh, we could have a discussion about acquired pro- products and how that changes that but
0: yes with the reba and concur and all the acquisitions they've they've done in particular
2: so eric i wanted to mention to you uh, you're you're kind of guiding our question flow so you can decide where you want to take this but i did prepare some unique content for your audience in your show what i did yes. I you write a lot about project success and how to achieve it. So what I did is I came up with my underrated keys to project success that that I believe don't get enough airtime. And I thought you might enjoy hearing them. uh, Because it might clash with some of yours and be kind of fun. So I prepared I think about eight of them, I don't have an exact count, because some of them are kind of related to each other. But anyway, Yeah, that's great. So
0: whenever you want to hit them, I've got them for you. Let's, let's jump into it because I think that'll stimulate and and I'm excited too, because I have no idea what's on your list, which is great. And and I want to hear what uh, the audience has to say too. So I'll kind of watch, you know, I think it'll probably stimulate uh, more questions and comments. So yeah, please fire away your, your top eight or 10 or however many it is, uh, underrated keys to to success.
2: Yeah. Well, well, let me preface this by just quickly saying that a lot of the keys to project success you read about on Eric's blog, for example, are, are pretty. I don't want to say they're they're mundane, but they're not sexy. But they're just they just are true things like executive buy-in, uh, change management is a theme that you hit all the time. That's obviously a, a given. Training, for example, companies continue to uh, chronically underinvest in in training, um, and and when you look at why products fall short, it's often like a real key to why why they did. And so there are things like that that are that are there um that that i'm not going to mention today just because they're obvious they're important though but but they're just not that much fun to talk about because <laughs> we keep talking about them you're right um, but but then the, 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 there's some newer ones that are kind of important that i'm not going to get into as well but they have to do with the fact that a lot of these multi-year products now you could have a multi-year transformation project but it i don't believe you're going to see it through unless you have so-called quick wins. So one of the big jobs of today's products is figuring out what those quicker wins are going to look like that that has to be put into place as part of this. Um, and 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 then, but the quick wins have to tie into an overall platform strategy. So in other words, the other mistake companies have made, and this I've seen it in the pandemic as well is roll out an app quickly to customers because you need to have a direct to customer app. But you didn't think about what happens when I build ten more apps, like and I have ten of them. They need to be really on the same platform and be sharing the same design characteristics probably. But did you think through that? And with data platforms, is the same because more and more this is about information and data and not just transactional systems. So you have to have a data platform strategy as well. But I think a lot of that is all like understood, I'm not gonna sit here and say it's easy. I think that's understood. The other one I think that's understood is that you have to be able to know how you're gonna measure your, your success. And so I think more and more attention is being paid and and rightly so to what are the metrics by which we judge these outcomes. And the metrics need to be much more business oriented than they were in the past. So not just, oh, we got off of these legacy systems and now we're processing more transactions per second, who cares? are you getting closer to your customer? Are you getting closer to your suppliers? All that kind of stuff. So so that's all sort of the understood stuff. So let me get to the stuff that I think is like more um, underrated stuff. Um, sure. I believe a lot of this comes down to the, what I call the paradox of customer ownership, which is that successful projects require more customer ownership over the outcome of those projects and less what I would call sort of trust in the SI. I was gonna say blind faith, but that's not entirely fair. But less trust in the SI. A lot of times, the the, the external partners get in there um, because they've been in there for a long time and they've built the relationships up, and it's kind of a given. And I kind of reject that. I think you need to step back from that a little bit. Um, software selection is rarely the reason a pro- pro- project goes wrong, but you do have to choose the right software. Um, yeah. But 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 the thing I would say the first underrated key is picking the right partner. And 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 that has an industry component to me. So you need someone who understands your industry. And, and that's why the generic SI thing I'm skeptical of, because a lot of times I think the, the best SI or partner for your project may not be a large SI. Maybe it is, but it's gotta be people that understand your industry. And, and can speak to you about what other customers in your industry are doing how they're winning where they're going wrong if they can't have that conversation with you i don't care how well they know your software they won't be able to help you the, these these generic software categories like erp and crm they are not going to be generic categories in five years i can mm-hmm. tell you even in the crm world they're talking about industry now and and how do we create customer uh, management, customer experience applications that fit a particular industry situation. So you need partners that understand your industry. So that's 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 my top key.
0: Right. It's a good one.
2: Do you want to comment on that before I move into a few others? Or
0: no, I just think I think it's a great point. I mean, I think too many companies get enamored by a name. You know, it's Accenture, it's Deloitte, it's IBM, whoever. Um, and I, I, the saying that drives me crazy is no one ever got fired for hiring IBM or Accenture, or Deloitte except I can name a ton of people that have been fired for hiring one of them. <laughs> that's, that's the copy. Yeah. That.
2: Or, and, and wound up in, in court, like in, in various lawsuits that you've served as the expert witness on as well. And and look, yeah. there are some great um, teams and larger SIs as well. So I'm not just going to sit here and trash that it's yeah. more, but I think you have to look more experienced than than name and, and make sure that, that those you engage with are the ones who are actually going to be seeing your project through and, and, and on the ground with you, quote, unquote, even if they're not, on the ground per se, they may not be on the ground, but you know what I mean. Um, my no next one,
0: yeah, no matter who it is, uh, even if it's a great fit, who it, whether, whether it's a big SI or not, you still have to manage those consultants. I mean, it's your project and you still have to own it. So I think that's the other thing too, is don't assume that just cause you found the right one, that now your, your work here is done. They're gonna take it from here. You still have to work very closely with them and collaborate and have the right controls in place and all that stuff, so.
2: My next one is I look for I look for signs of struggle in the customer partner relationship. And by that, I mean, I, I, I want to, when I do interviews and such, I want to hear about the hard times. I don't care mm-hmm. what project you have. If you didn't have a hard time in a moment of truth or two on that project, I don't buy your success. And, and I'm looking for partners that are not perfect and have these perfect rosy stories. I'm looking for stories of how we had a gut punch and how we came together and overcame it. That's what I wanna hear about. And I don't hear enough of those stories, but that's what I look for. And and when I see really successful projects, that's what I see is I see a relationship between the the customer, the vendor, the partner that have all been tested and they've seen it through. And that's what I'm looking for.
0: Yeah, that's a great one. And. It gets back to the point of every every decision, whether it's a which consulting partner, which vendor, or which product you use, or whatever it may be. There's always a dark side to it, or there's always some sort of risk, or some sort of uh, uh, not a failure point, but mistake. You know, like in the case of consultants, where have they made mistakes? Where have the challenges been with the project? And if you're not picking up on that, then you're missing something because it's there. You just have to understand what they are.
2: Bingo and and a lot of the rest of mine kind of fall into a general category which is that i have a lot more confidence and hear a lot more good things with customers that that uh, the way i put it is they come up for air more often so in Mm -hmm. other words they're not heads down all the time focused on themselves they have context they have context of what their peers are doing they have context to what the industry are doing they enjoy debating trends with with analysts and bloggers and people like yourself. Um, So there are different components to that. I look for, for example, it's a cultural thing, right? In the sense that there are some companies that really don't encourage or provide budget for their employees to do these things. And there's a lot of reasons for that. I think a lot of them are ultimately self-defeating. Some of the reasons are, Oh, my gosh, like if if we give our employees all these networking and immersion opportunities and send them to conferences and stuff, they'll meet other employers, and they'll get hired away from us. And so, like, let's let's be insular. Um, but it always fails in the end. And and so I look for things like active user group involvement. Um, I look for people who are always out there networking on LinkedIn and elsewhere, asking questions in product forums, getting information. Um, That kind of stuff is so invaluable. When I see customers talking together at trade shows and swapping war stories, I sit here and say, gosh, every minute of this is worth thousands of dollars of consulting time. What they're bringing home to their team from these conversations gives them such huge perspective. So many of the problems that we run into on projects are because we're not getting regular infusions of good information that, that make us all more, uh, you know, understanding of what is really happening and how to get a good result. So a lot of things fall into that category. Um, and and I'll add another one to it, but I'll see if you have a comment on that.
0: Yeah, I, I think it's a great point. I mean, I, as a consultant, and it's easy to think that, you know, people are just going to want to come to you to get the answers and, and get the advice. But I think, you know, when we do our events, like our live events or virtual events, um, It's just as I think there's just as much value to people attending those getting uh, information from each other and just learning from each other's mistakes and war stories as it is hearing it from a consultant. And I think in some ways, a lot of ways, actually, your peers are going to be a lot more credible because they're you can relate to them better than you could a consultant who's an outsider you know, looking in. But if you're dealing with a peer who's sitting in your exact same seat and they've made some mistakes, maybe they've done some things right that you can learn from. That's that's pretty invaluable, and it's it uh, that tends to stick just as well, if not better, sometimes than consulting advice. So I, I totally agree with you on that.
2: The next one's a really big one for me, and I have a whole series on Diginomica I've written about this. I think I you might I think I might even have a piece about you in this series. I'll have to check. Um, I'll check it out. But it's it's the importance of independent advisors and in, in project results, and independent advisors can fit all kinds of different flavors. Um, but but what it comes down to is that whoever you select for your prime partner should have some level of accountability at various points. That could be independent subject matter experts who come in on a consulting basis, it could be people who participate in software evaluation, it could be people who do software audits and maturity checks. There's all kinds of flavors of of, of independence. And it's very, very important to integrate their voices into what it is you do. and. There are objections to this that I hear, and the biggest one is, oh, well, that's a political minefield, and it makes things so much more complicated, and the the main prime vendor is threatened by this, and it will, you know, perhaps all of those things are true, but you still have to do it because Mm -hmm. otherwise you're putting too much stock in one vested interest or two. To make sure that this goes a certain way and y- y- you can't afford that these products are too important so sorry but you have to learn how to manage the politics of it
0: yeah and i would almost argue is it really politics or is it that you're call you have a party there that's calling out the elephant in the room which is there's a problem or here's a risk and we need to deal with it versus no no, no let's just shove that under the rug and not deal with it so you could call that political but in my view it's like yeah it's sort of politics it does get into some politics but i think it's because it's somewhat of a threat sometimes to the si i know for us a lot of times i know a lot of system integrators don't want us involved um and, and it's not because we don't know what we're doing exactly. it's because we we create a level of accountability and we expose risks and and that's what you should do anyway not because you want to point fingers or assign blame it's not about that it's just these projects are messy and if you're not feeling like it's messy you're doing it wrong <laughs> you know you're, you're missing something if you don't get into the messiness of it. So you might as well just draw the messiness out, tackle it, deal with it, clean it up as you're going rather than brushing it under the rug. And then post go live, you know, you find that you can't function your business because you didn't deal with any of these things.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, and look, I mean, in, in good, healthy product environments, it shouldn't be politics because your, your partner should welcome that. And that should be part of when you select a partner, you should be very upfront with them that even though we're going to really put our trust in you for this project, we're going to have other people involved that are going to provide input in various points. And, you know, a, a good project environment, people welcome that kind of openness, and, and, and appreciate, like the informed judgment of experts, because the independents that come in are not coming in like to screw up your project, they're coming in to provide valuable perspective. And so, ideally, right. to your point, those politics shouldn't be there. But I just wanted to acknowledge it, because I do want to acknowledge that I do think it does require a little more finesse to manage. But I think the payoff it's just so huge if you can figure out how to do it. So.
0: Yeah. And, and the other thing too, is, you know, you were talking about, um, I can't remember if it's before or after we started the live stream and we were talking a little bit before we went live. Uh, but at one point here today, we were talking about how um, uh, people need to sort of take control back uh, from their, of their project and not necessarily um, just view it as an IT project. We we're sort of talking about that whole technology versus business mm-hmm. piece of it. and when you have an independent advisor you, well let me back up when you have a, a software vendor a big si that's managing everything and you have no other counter opinions in there you're going to view everything or they're going to view everything as sort of a technology first like if i'm an sap integrator let's figure out how sap is going to fit in here well there's a lot of places yep. where sap doesn't belong there i mean you can still be using sap but you don't need to be using it for everything you don't need to buy every single module out there or you exactly. know, deploy it to the organization so those are the types of decisions that happen throughout an implementation that to your point, might be perceived as political, but it's, I think, just asking good questions and challenging, you know, the status quo in a a good way that's going to help you longer term. Okay, we're here playing a clip with John Reed from Diginomica talking about some of the tech trends in 2022 headed into 2023. We're going to continue the conversation when we come back, but first we'll take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. Hi, this is Eric Kimberling, the CEO of Third Stage Consulting, and we recently hosted our Digital Stratosphere 2022 virtual event. It's three days of packed content related to digital transformation best practices, about 16 or 18 different workshops and different speakers that are presenting on different topics, everything you need to know about transformation. The the bad news is you, if you miss that event, the event's over. The, the live event already happened. But the good news, if you have missed it, or even if you did attend it and you want to see replays or you want to catch the sessions you missed you can do that now by going to stratosphere 2022.com go to stratosphere2022.com register all you have to do is put in your your name and email address uh, just a few fields you get immediate access to all the recordings and the recordings cover everything from digital strategy um, software selection organizational change process improvement architecture data migration cloud trends in the industry Um, how to avoid failure, some of the legal aspects to think about, contractual aspects to think about as it relates to your transformation. All that is stuff that you'll get by registering for Stratosphere 2022 Replay. And again, go to stratosphere2022.com and you can listen to all the replays of all the workshops that you might have missed at the event. So hope you check it out and uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Hello, welcome back to transformation ground control episode number 103 we're playing you a clip of john reed from diginomica and i talking about enterprise tech trends
2: then then the next thing is um i have two more so this is the second to last is is health checks which is the other part of coming up for air. is you know you you need you need some form of health checks on on your project on a on a much more regular basis and so how that works is up to you um, I'm finding that increasingly there's companies that will offer those to you and, and, and come in periodically to, to do some kind of a project health check. And, you know, I'm not going to like name a bunch of names now, cause I don't want to like do a big advertisement for companies, but there are, they are out there. You can contact me offline or perhaps Eric, if you want to learn more about that. But, but to me, that's, I, I know that it's kind of like, well, it's almost seems like a dental appointment. And so I, I know that companies who do these health checks, do find some resistance from some companies, because sometimes it's like just kind of like a dental appointment where it's like, oh, you might have a cavity over here. Like, well, that's not always the the news you want to hear at that moment in time. But when you look back on it, you're like, man, i really glad I got on top of that. And so coming up for air more often includes a formalized health check that could take stock of various aspects of your project, whether it's project morale or timeline versus actual goals or whatever it is.
0: Right. That's, that's a good one. And it, you know, you you coming up for is an important uh, concept, you know, you want, you want to be able to see the forest for the trees and it's so easy to get down in the weeds and get all tangled up and all the details of how the system's going to get designed and built and tested and all that stuff. I think companies need to back up every so often and just sort of look at the, the lay of the land and see where the risks are, where the landmines are and start to navigate those better.
2: Yeah, absolutely especially because there can be big leadership changes you could have a ceo turnover you could have an acquisition pending there's all kinds of things that can change roadmaps and change goals and if your business goals change then your projects have to change so all of that requires much more adaptable thing And and then the final thing which could be a whole show unto itself is my very firm belief that 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 for the most part go live is just the beginning of extracting benefits from projects The idea originally came from my now past partner michael doan uh, who i wrote a book with back in the day but he had developed a lot of mature maturity models in the erp and sap environment to help companies think about how you thrive after go live is how he put it Um, but the same is true for modern software i've written some pieces on cloud erp benefits and how i'm very struck by the fact that a lot of customers get so excited about their go live because they got off all these legacy systems and they 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 integrated a bunch of databases. They rolled it out to new regions, all this stuff. The software is more user-friendly than their old stuff. They think that's the end of it. But in fact, that's just the beginning. And and there's so much more that is possible, but you you have to work at it. And I could go into all kinds of things, whether it's um, you know, automating workflows and creating the possibility to automate workflows, or whether it's uh, you know, dashboards and reporting and alerts infrastructures, whether it's uh new you know predictive technologies that that gets layered on top of 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 your core systems or whatever it is but i've kind of outlined a whole framework for that because there's so much more that can happen after go live and unfortunately the reality is that if you if you just kind of do your thing you won't achieve those benefits they don't just suddenly magically happen it requires uh, in fact in one of my articles on cloud erp that i'm just going to read this very short sentence to you if i can find it uh yeah there we go uh i say the, in this case i'm talking about cloud erp but it doesn't have to be erp systems despite the benefits of moving to modern erp many cloud erp gains don't seem to come until well after go live extracting full value from cloud erp is not about flipping the go live switch it requires organizational will in a fierce collaboration with the vendor and our consulting partner. And I go on to say, I don't care whether you call it digital transformation or business model evolution or agility or whatever the hell you want to call it. The point is you have to work for it. It's not going to land in your lap.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. And and one thing that's always fascinated me about these sorts of projects and the the way organizations think about these projects is you spend all this time and money, just massive amounts of time and money to, to implement and get to go live but they don't spend that extra little time it takes to just no fine tune it. And yeah. And it's not a lot of effort. I mean, it's, it, in fact, I would argue the highest ROI you're going to get on any activity in your entire project. is going to be that, those little things you do after Bingo. and it's, it's just fascinating to me. It's like you, you went through all that heartache and pain and budget, budget overruns and all that stuff, but you won't go that extra little mile to get some real value out of it. I mean, that's where you, and they're usually little things too. It's a lot of times it's like, you know, our oh, we have a work group over here that's not trained in the system, or they just are using it wrong. And if we just got them to use it the right way, the way it's meant to be used, you know, we could deliver X amount of value. So it's you know, identifying that laundry list of things that you could be doing, prioritizing based on value, and then going out and deploying just minor modifications to it. So I totally agree with you on that.
2: Yeah, so that's 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 my list. That is I don't a, know if we have an any awesome audience list. audience questions or additions, I probably probably missed a few good ones but that's what i prepared so if anyone has any good ones that they like feel free to throw them into the chat i'd love to see because i'll some point i'll write a new piece on this and i'll try to bring a lot of this discussion into it so
0: yeah yeah i'd love to hear the audience too in terms of what what they might be you know what people think you missed or what they would add to the list um and or and or if you agree or disagree with anything that'd be great to hear too um so uh let's see there's a bunch of comments and questions coming in here from the audience. Um, here's one I'll, I'll cover here with you, uh, John, see what you think. Um, isn't that a norm in big ERP projects to call on independent advisors during the realization phase?
2: If only it was, <laughs> it, it, it should be. Yeah. Uh, Eric, you, you do a lot of this work. Do you find that to be the norm?
0: No, it's not the norm. I mean, obviously the clients that hire us, it's the norm. It's what they do, but, uh, but it would, what amazes me though is with i'd say an overwhelming majority of expert witness cases where there's a lawsuit and you know a project has failed and they bring us in as expert witnesses or in cases where it's not a lawsuit but it's a project failure or a struggling project and they hire us to come in and clean it up in an overwhelming number of those cases there was no independent voice of reason and so they sort of the organizations yep. get led astray down a path that doesn't necessarily make sense for them and they don't know how to get off that path because they don't know any better. They don't know what questions to ask or how to, how to redirect or if they should redirect. And so, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd say, no, it's not the norm, but I would agree it should be. And that's the whole reason I started the company that I started. I guess
2: I would say if you think that's the norm, you have, a, you're probably working for a good organization and you should probably yeah. stay with that company <laughs> and congrats, congratulations for that. That's, that's <laughs> Any other great. questions?
0: Yeah. Um, how about this? this? Is getting into a little bit of change management stuff here, but what are the musts in the communication plan during implementation? So, what are the things we must communicate in our communication plan during a implementation hmm. or transformation?
2: I, I really like that one because I do think companies. I'll be interested to hear your view on this because I would definitely defer to you on change management. But, but my view is where companies can sometimes make a mistake is they can talk too much about how this is going to help the company. I do think that's important because we want the company to survive but not enough about what the benefits are gonna be for you. Um, and so, so what I'm looking for is more role-based information on how is this gonna make your, the, you, the user, your daily life better? Because if, if, if it's gonna help my company, but my job's gonna suck for three months, mm, that's not so great. And, and I, the other thing I'm really looking for is some real transparency around, okay, this is difficult. You're not going to necessarily enjoy all aspects of what's new. (laughs) We tried to incorporate your changes, you know, so in other words, the inputs in there, Um, but we weren't able to do all of them. We have to, in, in, in many cases in these bigger projects, we had to go back to standard functionality in certain ways, you know, so you have to explain why you made those decisions. So I think that transparency around all of that stuff is, is really important to, to get buy-in but the thing is if you bring that communications plan in you you better have had input from those users long before that plan was ever written otherwise Mm -hmm. i don't care what you say it's not going to go over you should have gotten their input from the beginning a lot of a lot of times these these line of business users will have better ideas than you do about how to use the software so
0: yeah and i totally agree with that and and there's a lot of situations that we see where you've got a great change team in place. You've got very capable people that can handle the communication piece of it. And it's actually not the oftentimes it's not the communications itself that's the problem. It's that the organization doesn't take the time up front to define what the organization is going to look like and how the how the changes are going to be realized. So, you know, for example, to your point about a job sucking for an individual, but allegedly it's going to be great for the organization. You think about um, we're seeing this a lot with like AI and machine learning. And you build a business case that shows that, you know, John Reed now is going to save, you know, 60% of his job is going to be automated. So now he can spend more time doing other stuff. And so then you hand that off to the communication team and say, okay, there's the, there's the impact to John Reed's uh, job. And what are you going to communicate? I mean, you're going to communicate that your, your job is getting automated, but you don't have anything good beyond that. Like, well, what are you going to do with that time that now gets automated? And now suddenly you're creating more fear and you're actually perpetuating, a, you know, you're you're creating resistance by communicating what's been, you know, what you've been tasked to communicate. So a lot of times you see that the communication and change efforts actually backfire, not because they're not good at it, but because the, the vision hasn't been set for what John's job is going to look like and what he's going to do with that 60% of his time that now is supposedly going to be automated.
2: Oh man. I love that point you raised too, because there is still a lot of fear around automation and what that means for my job and my work. And, you know, the good news is that we're seeing in a lot of cases that, that that because of labor shortages and things like that that when companies automate they actually do need those existing personnel to to perform hopefully even more engaging work because it's not as repetitive like a lot of the work that gets automated is the more repetitive mundane parts and so hopefully it's the more interesting parts whether it's custom customer facing stuff or more sophisticated shop floor stuff or whatever it is but the one thing i would say is that Headcounts do come along, headcount reductions do come along with some of these projects. And, and to pretend otherwise is totally disingenuous. And, yeah. and if you do have a headcount reduction, that does need to be communicated openly as part of this exercise. And to be able to say, look, we do have to, we don't want to, but this is the situation. Um, but, but, but then on a personal level, everyone who's staying on, you say, look, we did have to let these people go, but you're staying. Your job is changing but you're staying and here's the opportunity to your point that you're going to have um, and i think most people will embrace those opportunities but but it, it you have to be right you fair about how you describe them because otherwise they're not going to use your software i mean sales are the classic example because salespeople, especially the good ones getting them to enter the data that you want to put into the system you know, to, to make your AI better and to make your analytics better, have fun with that. If they don't like using your system and it doesn't help them make more sales, they're not using your system. You can't force them to use I don't care. You're not going to be able to force them to use it. They'll just go somewhere else. They'll take another job. So I, I love looking at sales and change management because that's a classic example of why, God, we need the data in those salespeople's heads. Well, how are you going to do that without losing your top salespeople? You're going to do it by showing them they're going to make even more money in the new setup. Otherwise, forget it.
0: Yeah, exactly. It can't just be an administrative task that they're doing for a greater good. You need to tie it to you're gonna actually make more money this way. That's a good, yep. good point. Um, here's a great question from uh, uh, Frank Scavo. I think you know him, don't you? Oh, I-
2: yeah, Frank. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, hey, Frank, so how you doing?
0: <laughs> it's good to see you too, Frank. Uh, hi, Eric. Good to see you. Uh, would you say that many companies are so worn out by the go live that they don't follow through to do that additional parts to layer on the real value added capabilities? It's a loaded question. I'll, I'll leave it to you to take the first pass at that.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'd love to hear your answer to that too. Yeah, um, I think I think sometimes the go live push can be exhausting, but eventually people do recover from that. the The problem is that they they kind of lose focus on what's possible, and sometimes their partners move on to whatever's next as well, and don't look at some of these higher level benefits, which are a little take a little more effort to achieve like in in my thing i talk about different stages of benefits so i talk about things like um the impact of data visibility in a single source of truth um i i talk about um you know uh setting up intelligent alert systems and anomaly detection i talk about platform benefits and and how to build on additional industry apps to your core things like that uh Researching future innovations provided by the vendor on a more regular basis, figuring out how to all those things just require organizational energy and resources. But I, I think Frank's right that, that right after go live, you can have this big exhale. I'm not so sure that's a bad thing, but there has to be an awareness that now you got to come back to it. And this is, you know, we, we talk about this notion of customer success, but it also applies to our own projects. Like we got to keep working at it because our business model is never on. Un- a done thing, we have to keep improving it. And the software is meant to help us with that, but we can't
0: stop. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And yeah, I also have to get to the root cause of to Frank's question about why are people so worn out? I mean, I know these projects are tough. I, you know, you and I have been mm. through them, a lot of us on the call have been through them. But you think about, you know, they're tough. They're t- yes, they're tough to begin with, they're inherently tough. But I think a lot of times we make them a lot harder than they need to be partly because we go in with these unrealistic expectations of you know that 18 month global rollout of sap you know to five thousand people i mean it's, it's not going to happen in 18 months but you're going to kill yourself trying to do it in 18 months it's going to end up taking 24 or 36 or whatever and you're going to be absolutely exhausted by the end frank's point but did you need to be i mean that and that, so that's the question of if you just planned for a 24 or 36 month rollout or whatever it is and you just had that burn rate and that tempo set and it's a more realistic tempo then you're, yes you're gonna be tired it's gonna be hard but you at least aren't so exhausted that you just move on. I think companies get to the point of like, Hey, let's just cut our losses. Let's just stop the bleeding and stop this project. And they don't want to spend any more time on that value realization.
2: Yeah. Good point.
0: Yeah. It's a really good question too. I like that one. Um, Alice, uh, take one more question here and then we'll, we'll be uh, here toward the end of our, our time slot here. But, um, this is a great one. I, I love this concept or this question, but do you think that user companies should build a sort of center of excellence for their post ERP implementation life or still be dependent on consultants to run their systems? Another great question.
2: I, I love the question. Um, and I think I actually had centers of excellence on the list. So this audience member is is definitely rocking it. Um, the <laughs> thing is, one of the reasons I didn't do it is because I started to feel like maybe it maybe was a little more on the obvious side and I wanted to do more underrated. Um, I, there are a lot of companies that don't have centers of excellence. I, I do think that uh, that it's an important aspect of ownership to think about how you cultivate internal skills. Now, look, you're not going to necessarily cultivate internal skills on every in every area of technology. So you won't necessarily have a center of excellence for everything. Um, you know, I'm generally a big fan of center of excellence for the areas that you're really taking ownership of, like whether it's ERP or or CRM, or maybe it's BI is another really good one, I think, to have a center of excellence around. AI would be a good example of a problematic one. You have to really look hard at whether you're going to invest in a data science team and cultivate that team uh, internally. Larger companies will, but... What if you're based in a more obscure location where it's hard to re- get people to relocate and that's important to you? Or, or or, or, what if you have a hard time holding on to these people? Maybe that's not the right COE for you and maybe you're going to have more external support around those concepts. So you have to make those decisions. But the one thing I would caution around the COE is I think sometimes it can become a little bland. And like even when you say it, it sounds kind of bland. And And I think you got to start thinking about how a coe also doesn't just isn't just a skill building exercise but actively contributes to some business result Mm -hmm. hank barnes at gartner wrote a really interesting post a while back it was short like a lot of his posts are so it left me hanging a little bit but he talked about what if we switch center of excellence to center of innovation and and i i'm not a huge fan of the word innovation because it's so flogged it almost lost meaning but like i like that shift a little bit Right. Like, how do we turn these into energizing activities that aren't just about filling skills gaps, but developing, you know, new ideas that can really help the business? I think if you do that, then I think it can be a very powerful concept.
0: Yeah. And constantly looking for ways to improve and leverage, selectively leverage new technologies and, you know, deploying those to your organization. And, you know, tying it back to a comment you made earlier, again, I th- this might have been before we went live today, um, but you, you were talking about low code ERP. Um, and how the users are becoming more self-sustained or self-reliant and and less dependent on IT. With that movement toward, you know, technology becoming more user-friendly and easier to manage it from the business side, I think that whole center of excellence concepts becomes a little more realistic. You know, it's a little bit more doable now because you have technology that isn't so complicated that you have to have this robust, sophisticated IT support function. It can be more of a, a business user support function. Um, So I I think that's a great point. All right. Good stuff. Thank you, Jonathan. That was a great conversation and uh, look forward to unpacking some of those trends and revisiting some of those trends now that we're in a whole new year to see which ones are relevant, which ones have changed. We're going to do that uh, when we come back from a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control.
1: Interested in working for a company that truly values your unique skills and experience? Here at Third Stage, we don't hire based on resumes alone. We look at the full candidate experience and willingness to provide excellent service for our clients. Within a technology independent and agnostic consulting firm, you have the opportunity to learn across industries with a diverse group of clients. Our consultants also have the opportunity to diversify their portfolio and learn across technology systems. If you're interested in joining a high growth entrepreneurial organization, please reach out to us at work at thirdstage consulting.com.
0: Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 103. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham, and we just had this clip that we played, Kyler, of John Reed talking about trends, tech trends as it relates to 2022. What were some of your thoughts or questions now as we sort of look back on the year 2022 and look forward to 2023?
1: Yeah. Well, you guys crack me up because, you know, the constantly you're like, I can't remember if we're talking about that now or if we talked about that beforehand yeah, or right. if we talked. To- and it's just it's such great, you know, true dialogue. Um, and I, I think the the thing about John is is understanding just his overall um, dedication and intention to bring transparency to the industry, which is interesting from a journalist and content creator standpoint. Um, usually we see that from a consultant or something like that, um, or someone, an influencer like yourself. So it's a great resource to be able to pull from a lot of his really great information. Yeah, and then I agree. And so th- we talked about, um, he had seven different points in there, and, and there's a, a kind of a few that I, I want to um, pull out. For example, um, he talks about the... I should say probably irrelevance of naming things. So when it comes to digital transformation, when it comes to organizational change, now we look operations AI, he mentions, and now we look at things like when we started this episode, um, you know, multi-cloud, um, hybrid cloud, all of those different names. And he really encourages businesses to actually name their own project. What do you actually want to achieve as opposed to what, you know, shiny marketing material did you receive from a software vendor? So I think that piece of it is still incredibly relevant in today's marketplace.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. It and uh, words are important and you know, even though I have a affinity against buzzwords and they they trigger me, it's like nails on a chalkboard when you hear some some word that you know, some consultant or analyst somewhere got paid a lot of money and spent way too much time thinking about it. Um, It is important though, when it comes to an organization that's going through their own transformation, it is really important to name it, to have the right language surrounding it and to be descriptive and deliberate about what it is your transformation is trying to accomplish. I I totally agree with that.
1: And I like how he talks about the opportunity for IT teams and then kind of clarifies, like I'm not at all bashing IT teams. And I I think that that really goes with kind of what we talked about earlier in this episode is the evolution of the CIO and the evolution of IT trends in looking at a more business focused approach and mostly being open to different processes the importance of mapping out those processes allows you to mine those opportunities but only if the IT and technical resources are open to collaborating to a new way of doing things and that's really the the next level and again that would be one of those trends that I would put that is still very very relevant in today's um, in today's digital transformation industry
0: yeah absolutely I, I totally agree with that
1: well if you will have more questions or I would I would um, ask our audience to put them in the comments about um, which trend you most uh, think is still relevant from John's list here, but he also has his Friday, I call them happy hours. I don't even know if he wants to brand those things, but I just can't help but brand things. <laughs> um, so it, it is um, at, I think he said 3 p.m. Eastern time. I think I watched them at 2 p.m. here in, in Mountain Time in the United States. But a great opportunity to kind of engage in the conversation. Very similar approach to that user-generated content and questions like Eric has. Um, So definitely hope everyone can pop in there and, and join that, that overall conversation. But overall, I still feel like all seven of his points are incredibly relevant and should be kind of part of a playbook when it comes to phase one or any sort of evaluation when going through a new technical implementation.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He's, he's got, he's always got good content, like I said, both in his, his online videos and things like that, but also uh, he's got a podcast as well as the Digidomico website as well, of course. Um, so really good stuff. We'll appreciate having him uh, back on the show, even though he doesn't even realize he was back on the show because we replayed the clip, but well, we will uh, invite him back because I'd love to have him uh, back on the show here in the near future to talk about sort of a refresh of, of those predictions and catch up with him on what he's seeing, what's changed in the last year or so. Uh, but to your point, I would love to hear the the audience comments here as well. Just drop whatever, platform you're listening or watching on just drop in the chat what you think uh some of the relevant trends are in that discussion or things that you think have changed or things you would add to the list i'd love to hear hear your feedback there and uh like you mentioned at the beginning of the show kyler if you have any audience questions uh that you want us to cover on this show be sure to tag us tag third stage consulting or tag kyler uh in whatever platform you're watching and uh we'll be sure to get to those and and add them to the what do you call them? The jar? The jar that we draw from to yeah, see which the questions we're question going to cover? Jar.
1: If you'd like, a, the marketing professional needs help naming things. So if you'd like to to promote a name for the jar, that's very open too. So, but we're going to start with the air question jar.
0: Keep it simple. Yeah. No, no buzzwords <laughs> yet. You're just going to name it some buzzword just to trigger me. I'm sure at some oh, point. Oh, I absolutely am.
1: <laughs> I love buzzwords. I, I unapologetically love buzzwords. So
0: AI-infused, hybrid, cloud, multi-tenant, blockchain-based. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I love all that stuff too. All right, good. Well, thanks everyone for, for joining. Thanks for the great conversation. Uh, again, new episodes every Wednesday on YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter, as well as audio podcast platforms. You can check us out on all or some or all the uh, platforms above. So be sure to check us out. Leave us a review and comments. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next week on Transformation Ground Control. Have a w- great week in the meantime. Take care. <laughs> top time, whoa, Ugh. top time. Yeah, so it's it's solid. It, it can only like, get better from here. <laughs> More to talk about. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Transfer. Hmm. Almost can't mess up the name of the podcast that's probably yes, the wrong spot to stutter
1: a core core message yeah
0: general best practices don't screw up
1: the name of the name
0: of the show all right